0: exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again, as Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood.
1: And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. no because I'm gonna get him!
2: And welcome to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania, where we broadcast live each and every weeknight. That's Monday through Friday, at 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. This is the place to be. Russ Desdar's on. Ted Brower, uh, of course. Um, my goodness, Dave Hodges. All the great shows right here on the Global Star Radio Network, and folks. We're also simulcast, if I can talk, on BTR Blog Talk Radio. You can watch us live in my archive, uh, of course, at our official YouTube channel. Just go to Hagman and Hagman dot com, and that's our home base on on the internet. Hagman and Hagman dot com. Want to welcome you in? Come on in. Come on. Come on. I welcome you into our new look here as we sit uh, in our new new newly. Re- what, you, what would you say? Restored, re- Refurbished? refurbished. What's that word? Renovated. Renovated.
3: Newly renovated studios. Yeah. We got a brand new desk. Yeah, yeah. The handmade.
2: Hand and made. you should we have, have seen them quarrying the rock. <laughs> yeah. So, uh,
3: no, we got a lot. Of, we, we made yeah. a lot of changes here. Yeah. In uh, fact, we uh, did. And this uh, beautiful desk is uh, thanks in part to Eric, our tech. Oh, uh, well, not thanks in part. And,
2: thanks. He, he, thanks he, too. He yeah. Yeah,
3: without him, this would be yeah. a pile
2: of rubble. Well, yeah, Eric is, uh, Eric's, uh, not moving too well today. But, uh, folks, for those new to the program, and I know we have some new viewers and listeners tonight in the, in the viewer challenge, because if you're just listening, you can't see what we're talking about. Just go check it out on our YouTube channel. But, uh, of course, you know, I'm Doug Hagman. I'm, I'm at the helm of the Investigator Researcher, and of course, my son, Joe Hagman, together. Something like I like to call the, uh, America's premier father and son investigative team, if I can talk correctly. We are so excited to bring you a very special program tonight. Um, I, I hope by now everyone has told their family, their friends to listen, to watch, because tonight I believe we've got in a, uh, one of the most important shows we've had ever. And I'll tell you why. 20 years ago, and I remember this vividly, um, 20 years ago this next month on July 17th uh, we had um, we, we, we lost 230 people TWA flight 800 fell out of the sky or actually was blown out of the sky just off the southern coast of Long Island and again 230 people now think about that men women children All right. and uh, of course we were led to believe by the by the people in charge that the cause was a center fuel tank explosion caused by, well, we can get into this w- with our guests, but... Yeah, we will you know, get into yeah, it. <laughs> but, but you know what? Uh, I mean, I, I remember that night, and I remember thinking, how could this happen? And then I... It, it wasn't, I, I don't know, it was sometime thereafter. I, I In fact, we were or i was doing investigations in in new york state partially in new york city and that that was like before and after 911 and i remembered after 911 thinking oh my goodness you know thinking back to 1996 and thinking back to this this tra- this this was my
3: episode. dad's 911 you know it uh, was and many people focus on 911 and and state it as their you know beginning point of where they began to look into alternative theories and uh, alternative narratives as as to what happened versus what history says. Well, my father's been looking into TWA Flight 800 since the day it happened. Yeah, and you know, I, yeah. I remember and, very actually, clearly listening to episodes of Coast to Coast. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: Um and, and you know, many other things that we would uh, do in our spare
2: time while doing investigations about TWA Flight 800. That's right. Traveling from place to place, and mm-hmm. I, I remember traveling along or uh, uh, on Long Island and and. Seeing this, the sign for, uh, East Marichis and, and thinking, you know, here it is, here we are. And of course, I, we, I had to stop. I, no, I don't think you were with me. But I had, um, found the work of author Jack Cashel and, um, followed him since he had written his first words about TWA Flight 800. And now today, I, we are so honored to have him in studio, author investigative researcher, journalist, Mr. Jack Cashel. Jack, thanks for coming and <laughs> being really our inaugural guest well, yeah. in our studio,
1: man. Hey, Doug, appreciate- Joe, thanks for having me. And, I, you know, for the record, I'm about 45 minutes up the road from you, where I spend much of my summer in, just over the New York State line. And uh, when my friend Nin uh, told me about it, I said, well, we got to get down here and talk to these guys. So oh, man. Here we are.
2: Well, you know what, folks, the reason uh, Jack is with us tonight is he has written a new book. It's going to be released on July 5th. It's still July 5th, right? July 5th, yeah. Two weeks. Two weeks from now. And I had the privilege and honor to read an advanced copy of it. And here is the, well, here it is, right right here. There it is, right there. TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. We're going to be talking about all three tonight. And I've got a lot of questions about, about this. Now, you might say, well, what's the relevance it was 20 years ago the relevance to me couldn't be stronger today because right now what do we have we've got the Clinton apparatus in my view it would the same apparatus political machinery that was in charge back in the 19 during 1996 when this happened is is attempting to get back into into power charge. Now, yeah. yeah in in Washington now but um and and still even more importantly, there were 230 people that perished from this this incident. So, and have we been told the truth? I don't think so. So, after reading this book, the advance read of this book, uh, folks, I don't make any money. We don't make any money by by selling or you know uh, promoting books. But I will tell you this: this is one of the most convincing books I've read with respect to the. Uh, I don't even want to say the alternative theories, but the. Um, the, the fact that there's not only something wrong I think Mr. Jack Cashel has uncovered exactly what's wrong, who the people are involved in the cover up and why and the conspiracy and why and uh, he he does it with using the, the very documents from the government I mean it, no alternative sources this is right from the, the, the investigator's mouth the people's mouth, so anyway I'm not going to take up too much more time here talking about Jack's book when he's with us uh, Jack, uh, again, thank you for for coming, and
1: uh, and also, you were the, you authored a book in 1997, I think it was First Strike. No, it was 2003. I co-authored 2003. it with uh, James Sanders, and okay. James was the fellow who got me an interest in this. And unlike yourself, I don't remember where I was when the the plane went down. And given the fact that I, you know, grew up in New Jersey and spent part of my summer in New Jersey sure, I should have remembered. But um, what got me engaged was about five years after the crash, four or five years afterwards, four years actually, uh, James Sanders was speaking in Kansas City. And I went to hear him speak, and it shocked me that there were so many people there, and they were so ex- animated. And then it dawned on me that Kansas City is the historic home of TWA. Right. And most of the people there were former TWA or current TWA people. And uh, James told a story about how he and his wife Elizabeth, who was a TWA trainer and flight attendant, uh, were both arrested and convicted of conspiracy for James' early efforts to uh, get at the truth of this uh of this uh, project, and and I we went out to dinner afterwards with a bunch of people, and I ended up sitting at the end of the table, speaking with Elizabeth, who was like this sweet, agelessly pretty uh Filipino American. uh She had been a, an exotic dancer. You could see she was a really a pretty woman, and she was innocent, mm-hmm. and that she could end up being, you know. You know, j- thrown into an orange jumpsuit and made the frog walk into a courthouse because she introduced her husband, who's an investigative reporter, to a uh, manager, seven forty seven manager and trainer, Terry Stacy. That's all she did. Right, right. And I'm and I'm know, st- I'm listening to this. I said maybe there's something here. And what happened is then, um, you know, I'm uh, at the time I was working mostly in advertising, and mostly and then I segued into writing for journals and also into doing documentaries. And so I met with them for breakfast the next morning in Kansas City. They lived in Florida at the time. And I said um, have you ever thought of doing a documentary on TWA Flight 800 because it's such a visual subject and they had not not to that point and we got to talking and then I, and I, I was still very skeptical. You know I have a natural skepticism about conspiracies and whatnot I thought this was another one of Clinton conspiracies sure. some of which are unfortunately true but some mm. of which aren't and um, so they invited me down to their home in Florida to review their material and I took them up on it before I went down there I read two mainstream books on on the crash and I'm thinking how can you possibly get away with the conspiracy this large and the books were both the orthodox rehashings of the government position they had me all but convinced. Then I go down to Florida, meet with the Sanders, and then I saw the one bit of evidence that I didn't even know existed. And that was the eyewitness reports. They had been suppressed for four years, and then finally they'd just been released. There were, you know, we had been led to believe there were a handful of eyewitnesses that may or may not have seen something. Mm-hmm. The FBI interviewed more than 750 people. That's right. 258 of them by the account of the National Transportation Safety Board, had seen an object soaring up and exploding at or near TWA Flight 800. Fifty-six of them had tracked that object all the way from the horizon to the airplane. And they're, they're remarkably consistent, as even the authorities had to acknowledge. And every one of them uh, says this. You know, I was looking at, I was at fishing or surfing or flying or uh, sitting in my... the This is the affluent south shore of Long Island where That's people right. are used to being taken seriously. And every account says something like this. And then someone said, look, and I see this object zigzagging out away from shore, and then it's uh, it's got a red tip and a smoky contrail, and then it uh, disappears, and then it explodes and explodes, and then I see this plane break apart, and then I see it fall out of the sky. You read that 700 or... Actually, most people just saw the end, but 250 times where people see that ascending, right. exploding, breaking up. They're describing the breakup sequence of the aircraft before the N- The FBI, the NTSB, were able to figure it out from the debris field. And you read that and say, where was this information? Why didn't the, the New York Times... You know how many of those 258 people, you know how many the New York Times interviewed? Uh, Zero. Right? Not a single one of them. And then you begin to think... Maybe there is something here, and that's that led to this. What for me has now been a you know fifteen year quest to get at the truth.
2: Well, uh, New York Times. I mean, they controlled the story from day one. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, it, it, this this whole thing. I mean, I, I, I remember when it happened. Um, and for those who, who don't know or are unfamiliar with this, again, uh, we're talking about. Uh, July 17th 1996 just a beautiful evening calm evening uh, think of 911 the morning 911 how serene and calm it is but here it is uh, Wednesday ju- uh, July 17th 1996 819 a Bo- Boeing 747-100 takes off from JFK airport headed for uh, Rome via Paris 12 miles out roughly there is an explosion in midair And, Jack, as you said, over 700 witnesses, 258 eyewitnesses who saw a vertical streak, and uh, 56 specifically who saw a vertical streak from the horizon, from the Atlantic Ocean area. Those are my words now. Um, Yet we, after one of the most expensive and extensive investigations in aircraft history, in the history, I I think, of, of anything, uh, we were told that, of course, it was a center fuel tank breach that caused the death of 230 people aboard, uh, 212 passengers and 18 crew. Now, the explosion took place at 13,760 feet, just for those people who are reportedly, okay? Um, now, some sources, if you look on the internet, you're gonna, you're gonna find all sorts of different sources, but that's, um, the altitude is at least in the reports I saw Jack officially listed at 12 or 13.
1: 13760,
2: so, yeah. Right. Okay, alright. But, but um during, during this time, during, on July 17th, 19, 1996, Clinton was, Bill Clinton was in office, Hillary Clinton was the deputy president, I suppose. <laughs> It, 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 July seventeenth was Saddam Day, right, or a National
1: Liberation Day, National Liberation Day for Saddam's us. Iraq. Yeah, okay. Their fourth, of, their evil Fourth of July, you know.
2: We were what a few days out from the Atlanta two, Olympics, two days
1: before the start of the Atlanta Olympics.
2: Okay. And, and what else is going on? Oh, the in the wake of the Cobar or the Cobar uh, Towers right. had
1: blown up three weeks earlier. Um, this is um, the military, the Navy, uh, reportedly, and I, I have no reason to disbelieve this because my sources are. You know the uh, mainstream sources was on the uh, highest state of alert since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, they were uh, looking for something, uh, and they were, um, you know, and this is part of the story we'll get into. What they what they did that evening is at the heart of our story. Okay,
2: all right, but but I mean that kind of lays a foundation, and here we have again the the Clinton political apparatus in office, and I look at back at that time. I look back in July. Uh, at July nineteen ninety six. I'm thinking about the p- politics and geopolitics at the time. And, uh, against uh, this, against the backdrop of, of what we just described. So, where do you want to start, Jack? In terms of w- where's the logical place to start? Because, well,
1: let's start with the logic of the crash and and uh, the logic right. of the cover up. I should say. Um, and, and I and there's a, an interesting anecdote I have here. Three years ago, an excellent documentary came out. You may have seen it. It's called TWA Flight 800 by Tom Stalkup and Christina Borgeson. Right. And I, I wasn't involved with it, but I, I know them both. Uh, Stalkup is a physicist who has been working on this from the beginning. Borgeson was a CBS producer who lost her job because she tried to get this on the air uh, a little too aggressively back when it happened. Uh, and um, so they got a fair amount of positive attention. It shocked me. The New York Times even reviewed it, and it said their review was, and this is for a high praise for New York Times, not your ordinary crackpot conspiracy stuff. They got, they persuaded six high-level whistleblowers who worked on the investigation to come forward on camera and talk about it. So I was invited on CNN's morning show, uh, to talk about it, uh, with Allison Day. I, no, I'm sorry, Allison Kozik was her name. And, uh, it was one of those CBS morning shows. I don't know. Right. I don't watch them typically. And, um, uh, it was, um, no, CNN. I'm sorry. CNN's morning show. And, um, so it was on pretty you know, like a five or six minute segment. This is typically the way they do it. And they had on with me a fellow named Jim Polk, who Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, something or another, who produced a documentary for CNN. And, you know, he was there to, you know, refute, uh, what I saw. and and he said, you know, there were, um, uh, I, it's so, it was so dishonest. Uh, I'm going to skip the beginning. I'll get right to the punchline. There's about a minute left and I've had, not had much to say because this guy's talking. And Kozik says, okay, Jack, if it was a cover up, you know how they talk, <laughs> yep. patronizing. Sure. Uh, who shot it? Why, why did they shoot it and why the cover up? I said, yeah, Allison, I got about a minute here. So let's just get right to the cover up. And I just said this spontaneously. I said, this is Bill Clinton's Benghazi moment. I said, he, he's on the verge of winning a reelection. And he has a national security disaster take place on his watch. And what he did is what Obama and Hillary did in 2012 is they just tried to kick that can down the road past November. You know, they, they knew they had a, you know, a media that would go along with them. They just wanted to get past November and then they'd worry about it. And then she said, Oh, okay, Jack, thanks. <laughs> you know, and, then, and that was it. And that was it. Yeah. Well, here's the punchline. The next day, I look at the transcript. My answer's been edited out. No. Right? It's they gone. They wouldn't do
2: that. No. <laughs> no, they
1: would And then I was curious <laughs> is that just last week, Newsday, which is the big Long Island newspaper, uh, had a little uh, editorial by their head editorial writer on my forthcoming book. They hadn't read the book. And they said, Jack Cashley, he's the guy who tried to compare uh, TWA Flight 800 to Benghazi, you know? <laughs> and they just just dismissed it right out of, out of. But that's, that's the logic of it. Man. That is the underlying logic. You have uh Democrats in the White House who know that the media will give them a pass. Sure. And yet uh, the, uh, this is the most successful cover-up in American peacetime history. That they got away with this. That they had the nerve to do it in front of thousands literally of Long Islanders. Uh is really stunning and they could only have gotten away with it uh, with a complicit media. You know, what really
2: struck me, and this was unbelievable as far as I was concerned, reading in your book, and of course, folks, again, his book, TWA, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. Go to Amazon right now. I mean, you have a copy around here? It's right here? Yeah. Right here? Oh. do you have another? Oh, the first book. Yeah. No, the, the first, no, this, this is, this is the book. Okay, so go to Amazon right now. You have permission to leave this program just three. <laughs> just uh, open a new tab. Yeah, right? open a new tab. But, but pre-order this because what is in here is just an, an amazing, Look, uh, as an investigator for thirty years, you can tell I don't do much well. I certainly am not a great talk show host, but I I, I feel I'm a pretty good investigator. Have I investigated air, airline crash, uh, um, uh, airline incidents? No, of course not. Well, no, are out of yeah, Well, yeah, but <laughs> but 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 you know what? I know a good investigative work product when I see it, and, and this is definitely it. This is, as far as I'm concerned, the magnum opus of all. Um, Books with, with respect to TWA Flight 800. It's uh, by Jack Cashel. So please order order the book, pre-order it, make it go to number one. And by doing so, you're making you're sending a statement to the to the mainstream media. If we can have a rally cry right now with all of the listeners, all of the viewers, just a rally cry to 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 hit to to, to tell the media, demand uh, that Jack Cashel be uh, invited on the talk shows, or or just send this book to number one that's going to get people's attention that's going to change a whole lot because there's a whole lot to come out but but jack i was saying you know 258 to convince 258 people basically or to attempt to convince the world the 258 people and over didn't see what they saw and over 700 people to to cause them to question what they saw i mean it it's it's i guess it's a brilliant tactic but i i mean I'd ask, could it be done today?
1: No, uh, it couldn't be done today for a simple reason, the Internet. And yeah, yeah. Uh, at that time, 1996, only about 10% of the people were online. So they didn't have the ability to communicate among themselves. So most people thought they were the only one. And then, you know, so they got gaslit by the FBI and the CIA. You know, that gas phenomenon where you yep. convince people they're crazy, <laughs> based on that old Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman movie?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and, um, but what's impressive is that the... Uh, Eyewitnesses are the one group of people not to buckle. They know what they saw. And these are serious people. Some of them are like military pilots, fishermen, people who know about, you know, relative bearing and uh, what they, they know what they saw. And there, you can't, un- you, they have not been able to break the eyewitnesses. And finally, they are the difference between this uh, story and any other story where there's an element of conspiracy involved. This is, these are real people. And what I do in the book, Doug, and what I try to do, uh, is I'm a writer. I mean, the t- a lot of people who write investigative books aren't writers. They're investigators. And they book, and they focus on the wrong things. Not the wrong things, but things that are are not convincing. This is a story, really, of people and politics. And I write it in the first person because I talk about my own journey into, from being skeptical of all conspiracies into someone who understands that this can happen in modern day America. Mm hmm. And what's curious and since I've been talking about this in the last 2 weeks uh before the book comes out and I I've, I've been getting uh, contacted by every single day now by another pilot another uh, investigator at the at the uh, crash site talked to one today I'll, I'll tell you his story in a second yesterday I got a call from an FBI agent you know mm. when they start breaking uh you're really doing something yeah. <laughs> last week I got a call from the air traffic controller who was on the screen mm. you know Hence the
2: article in the American Thinker, right? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: uh, well. And so, like today, for instance, the, the pilot. I just this is an anecdote, it just it's useful. And we'll get back to the, sure. the the main thread of the story. But I got an email from a fellow who had seen the American Thinker article, and he said, "Hey, you know, my cousin was on the investigation. You really ought to talk to him." And I, I said, if he wants to talk to me, I here I gave him my phone number. And um, I would say, by the way, anyone who wants to reach me, just Cashel at aol com. Who has this, who has some inside information? Jay Cashel at AOL.com. But so I'm talking to this guy. He was uh, he worked for the airline pilots' association. He was their chairman of their airline safety committee. He he arrived on the scene on day one, and he was part of the investigation. Within ten days, he'd been thrown off the investigation. He said, "I'd never seen anything like this. This was Gestapo tactics.
3: Finding too much truth. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> no. what happened is he he found a part." Uh, along the right wing that had clearly been damaged from the outside, you know, from the basic, the the pattern. And he brought it in to be tested. And they have this high level Aegis testing system on site. And it passed, you know, positive, 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 positive. They did seven tests on it. And then they said, they sent it to Washington. It was never seen again. The part was never seen. Nice. Um, And, and then every time he tried to question it, he was, he was just being bullied. Then they, they decided that he needed psychological help. Right? I mean just right out of you know it was like nineteen eighty four, you know? Wow. And then within two weeks he was gone, right? And he was the chairman of the airline pilot association safety committee. And he said, This is the way they rolled. And he said there's, you know, I could uh you know, there's a hundred stories like this that are are waiting to be told. Once people understand, then now it's the time to tell them. Well, Jack,
2: let me ask this. Um the, the, the claim that there would have to be thousands upon thousands of people involved in the cover up. Is that true or do you just need a few at the top? I mean, uh, And that's
1: an excellent question, especially when we get into talking about the Navy. Right. Um, but here's the, the analogy that I would give is that when I was young and foolish, I went uh, to see the Indianapolis 500. And we had been out all night drinking and in the infield, and I don't know if you have ever been, but it's no. it's a zoo. <laughs> you know, it's, they may have cleaned it up since then, but not that. <laughs> so you're you're there the next morning, you're half you know conscious, and you're at the you know you're watching your quarter mile of a two and a half mile track, right? Now I could tell you virtually everything that went on in that quarter mile, but if someone said to me afterwards uh, th- something horrible happened at the Indianapolis 500, we want to talk to Jack Cashel, who's there, right? And I, all I could say, if it wasn't in my quarter mile, I don't know what happened. Well, that, this is what I've been finding out as I talk to people uh, who were involved. They saw this much; they just saw a little bit, and they're, they 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 can tell you about their little bit, but they don't know the larger picture. This is true for not only for sailors, but for investigators on Long Island, uh, from even from FBI agents. Um, and uh, so they can they contribute a little bits, and in the book, you know, I I tell yeah. their stories. Uh, people who loaded the missiles onto the sub, people who were uh, had to scrub the uh, command information center after something went awry. But they don't know the whole story, and it's very, very, very few people who do. And um, I'm trying to goad at least one of them to come forward, because that's what it'll take to really break this case.
3: So you've compartmentalized you uh, pieces of, of information that would lead to um, a clearer picture of actually what happened on this day. Um, and you're working toward that goal, but right now, uh, what you have are people who are reluctant to come forward.
1: Well, and there, uh, I will say that I've been really impressed in the last two weeks how many people have come. I, I'm literally one a day, you know, two a day, uh-huh. um, because the, finally it's like I think there's going to be a flood tide in. And Doug, you're exactly right. This has to be pushed from the bottom up, yeah. and that's why I, I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to come on this show. And it's really, you know, I. Thanks to Nin, my friend here, uh, who's a big fan and listener, I said you got to get down and talk to Doug and Joe. And, and since we're only forty-five minutes away, it was it was great. But um, yeah, that's what it's going to take. And uh, but but you're right, Joe. It's it was tightly compartmentalized for a reason. And as an example, and I talk about this in the book. There was a congressional hearing. I guess it was about was it two years after the crash, and the the people from the NTSB who investigate accidents and are predisposed to see accidents, the one guy is testifying goes, uh, yeah, I I think it was an accident. I have no reason to believe it was a bomb. Uh, And and if the FBI says, uh, if someone says it's a missile, I didn't see any evidence of a missile. He's testifying two years after the thing. He doesn't know there were any eyewitnesses. (laughs) He did not know there were any eyewitnesses. That's how uh, controlled it was. If you're reading the New York Times, which owned the story... They didn't interview any eyewitnesses who saw a missile. Not one single eyewitness, you know.
3: Well, since you were the one that that talked to many eyewitnesses, uh, and us being investigators, uh, we dealt with eyewitnesses a lot. How do you get the truth out of eyewitnesses when it seems that, you know, when 100 people see the same event, you'll have 100 different versions?
1: Well, in this case, you have... Uh, and let me just uh, add one wrinkle here, and this is, I think, which makes this book advances what our knowledge is so greatly. And that is that, and this happened only within the last year, for reasons I'm not sure of, either out of carelessness or out of indifference, uh, responding to a Freedom of Information Act request, the CIA released this treasure trove of documentation. Uh, and it explained... And step by step by step by step, how the CIA corrupted this investigation. And unlike many accidents, you know, where people different people see this or different people see that, um, or like if we were at the Indianapolis five hundred, and I said, "Yeah, I can tell you about my quarter mile," the even the the uh, people who were trying to suppress it had to admit that the eyewitness testimony was rem- their quote remarkably consistent. Mm. They saw the whole picture. They weren't like at a quarter mile of a track. They saw the whole sky, the best eyewitnesses. And I, in the book, I you see this, Doug. I go through the yep. forty best eyewitnesses. Oh yeah. yeah. And if you read their accounts, you cannot but believe they know what they saw, especially since some of them were military people, or you know, people right. who knew what they were seeing. Yeah, you you got
2: you got a cross section. You got pilots. You got people in the military. You got. People, you know, on the sea, people very familiar with that area. Uh, Indeed, I I, I get get that. What? um, uh, How can we best lay this out for for people at this point? Yeah, there's a lot of information in here. I don't. I mean, going through uh,
3: some Cliff Notes that my dad put together and uh, reading different parts of your book, there's a lot of information that I had no idea uh, was had had anything to do with, with uh the TWA Flight eight hundred. And just to give you an example, the, the red residue, the explosive residue inside the plane. Which uh, this yeah. is none with a yeah. you know like an one of a hundred things that, that I'm learning right. as I'm going through your book. Um so I guess if you want we can take it step by step yeah. from you and know walk us through. Like. Yeah, I'll uh, me, I,
1: and I'll walk you through because in and the and this is information now that your audience is getting that, uh, even most researchers in TWA don't know if they haven't read the CIA documents. Right. And, and that's the, the CIA is like, open the, the pages, open the book. It, you know, it's like the, it tells you finally how the sausage was made. <laughs> we knew about the sausage at the end, but we got to see the sausage making. And, uh, the CIA, we learned from their own memoranda, was involved from day one. Now, think about this. I got to back you up a little bit. If you remember at the two thousand four nine eleven hearings, uh, George Tenet, then the director of central intelligence, he was a, a Clinton guy, came up through the Democratic ranks. Bush held him over for God knows what reason. And um he's telling talking to the ten members on the nine eleven commission about they said, "What? Well, why didn't why weren't we able to stop September 11? And he said, Well, it was because of the wall. And they and they had to explain what the wall was. There was a wall, uh, placed between intelligence gatherers and prosecutors, so that the FBI wasn't able to talk to the CIA, and the CIA even um, even when the FBI, the intelligence gatherers in the FBI, couldn't talk to the prosecutors, and that was the first time the uh, public was aware of that wall. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a kicker to this. I'll come back to later, but what we see in the CIA documents, there was no wall. They were collaborating with the FBI from day one. They weren't really collaborating though, because the CIA had the upper hand in this relationship, and they had the upper hand because someone had their back and they knew it. So, two weeks into the crash, the FBI meets with the FBI missile team, meets with the CIA analysts, and uh, he identifies himself as Philip Taos. He wins a medal for his work, um, and the they tell him. And at this point, the FBI is doing a faithful, a good faith job. They're really trying to do what they're trying to do. And he tells them, he says, um, uh, the missile, the CIA guy reports to his boss. The names are redacted. He says, you know, we met with the FBI missile team. They tell us they have one hundred forty-four excellent eyewitnesses. Their words, Uh, their testimony is remarkably consistent. Too consistent to be anything but a surface-to-air missile strike on the airplane. And uh, these are mainly professional people, and um, that's the dilemma they're facing, right? Um, and he said that the there is a very high probability, this is a surface-to-air missile, 144 excellent eyewitnesses by July 30th, two weeks after the crash. And then the CIA guy explains how he tried to talk the FBI out of this, out of holding this position. And he said they're just about ready to release their preliminary report. It's never released. Hmm. At this point, someone intervenes. Uh, because that FBI reports never released, the next thing we hear from the FBI is on July is August 17th, their first discussion with the New York Times about the eyewitnesses. Now remember on July 30th, we had 144 excellent eyewitnesses. By August 17th, the FBI is telling New York Times there's only a handful of credible eyewitnesses. A handful, mm. and the only one that they presented the FBI to talk to, uh, the New York Times to talk to, is a fellow named Michael Russell, who's a serious guy. He's out on a trawler. He's an engineer. He, out of the corner of his eye, he looks up, and he sees a bright white flash off in the distance, and then he sees the plane fall right out of the sky. And they say that bright white flash is uh, evidence of a high explosion, which means he saw a bomb. We believe it's a bomb, and then New York Times faithfully reports. This further um, removes the possibility that a missile was responsible. That's the takeaway mm. line. Right. The article they were given Russell, who wasn't lying or anything. It's just that he just saw it out of the corner of his eye. He didn't happen to catch the preceding, you know, smoke trail. And so then, by August seventeenth, one month to the day after the crash, it's a bomb. We've decided it's going to be a bomb. The FBI can live with that bomb scenario for whatever reason. Maybe they figure it's the best we could do based on the, the pressure that's being put us by the CIA. Now, they're not supposed to be collaborating at all. I mean, this is the irony here. And then the bomb scenario holds for one more month. Uh, and it reaches a, a problematic state on uh, August 23rd because on that day, there is a headline above the fold right in the New York Times and it says uh, prime evidence found that explosive uh, device in cabin destroys TWA flight 800 that's a paraphrase but it's close above the fold left on that same day uh, Clinton signs welfare reform bill on eve of Democratic <laughs> National Convention one of those headlines has to go and um, it's the one about the evidence found that bomb take out plane he's Clinton is selling peace and prosperity to the nation and if this plane has been destroyed by terrorists or whoever the peace message is at, at risk so that goes and it takes him another month uh, I should say the day before that headline appears knowing that headline is appearing Jim Kalstrom, the head of the FBI investigation is summoned for the first time to Washington and who's calling him there? but none other than our my favorite mistress of disaster uh, Jamie Gorelick Who's the deputy attorney general? Oh, th- this is a beautiful story, folks. And I had to set this up because Gorelick, um, uh, justice was Hillary's personal fiefdom, Department of Justice. And she insisted on having a female head of the Justice Department. And Joe was probably maybe too young to remember this happening, but we went through several alternates because they all had nanny problems and they got oh, disqualified. Yeah. Finally, they settled on Janet Reno, who's this feckless. Uh,
3: I remember. You know, cranky old
1: <laughs> Miami prosecutor. And they make her attorney general, but they don't trust her, the Clintons don't, because she's halfway honest. So they have to circumvent her. And they put their own people in their number two slots. First they have Webb Hubble in there, and he ends up going to prison, so he's no good. <laughs> and then they settle on Jamie Gorelick, who's a sort of a sort of a quiet, beyond-the-scenes litigator from D.C. And Jamie Gorelick's their person. She's their henchwoman. She'll take care of him there. Now I'm going to digress just a second to tell Jamie Gorelick's career arc after oh, she takes over the investigation. And it's a remarkable that this hasn't been reported in the major media. But I, I had to double check your facts. Yeah. I did
2: because when I read this, I, I thought, "Nah, it you, couldn't happen. It, it doesn't sound right. Right, it doesn't." It, not that I doubted you, but I did.
1: Well, check. Jamie Gorelick, uh, she does a very steely performance orchestrating the TWA 800 cover-up. Uh, you know, overseeing the collaboration between the CIA and the FBI. And then in May 1997, when this is pretty much safely put to bed, she gets a new job. It is the plum job in Washington. Now, she has no experience in finance and no experience in real estate, but she is made a vice chairman of Fannie Mae, uh, among the most corrupt uh, self-serving operations in D.C. And over the next six years... Uh, Jamie Gorelick will self-serve herself to the tune of the queenly sum of $25 million. She makes $25 million in this quasi-public job for which she has no experience. Right. Then, in an act of either great patriotism or uh, the need to CYA, you know, or CHA in her <laughs> case, she takes one of five Democratic positions. On the nine eleven commission, right oh, now, man. when when she's sitting there, when George Tenet brings up the issue of the wall, and she looks like, well, what wall? What's he talking about? And she's, oh yeah, we knew about the wall. She said, I brought brutal force to try to break down that wall. And Tenet says there were ironclad regulations that wall was impenetrable. Well, two weeks later, John Ashcroft is testifying before the nine eleven commission, and he talks about, and they ask him why did 9-11 happen? What was the obstacle? And he said the single greatest obstacle was the wall. We weren't allowed to collaborate. The FBI and the CIA weren't allowed to cooperate. And then he says, I have to tell you this, though, and I, it's odd that I, I'm the one who brings it to you, but the author of the wall memorandum is sitting on the 9-11 commission. It's Jamie Gorelick.
2: Wow. Yeah. So, uh, you understand that? I mean... Uh, that's a fact I did not know.
1: Yeah. And the uh, the terrible irony of this is the same wall that prevented the CIA and the FBI from cooperating to prevent nine eleven uh was easily breached uh, to subvert the TWA Flight 800 investigation. which And this is what's new in this book. And no one, I mean, even TWA people don't know this we knew that the fbi took over the investigation illegally from the ntsb on day 1 but what no one knew is that the cia took over the investigation from the fbi on day 1
2: and, and that's a good point because title 49 of the us code says uh, it gives the ntsb which uh, it was uh, the ntsb began it was or was created back in what 67?
1: 67 yes 67 and, right. and
2: then went went uh, fully private in 74 and but they are the agency that should oversee all aviation and all transportation disasters, or right? And they want it because an
1: independent agency, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: not exactly because of, but yet we've got the FBI, the CIA involved, and and who knows who else, military as well, perhaps involved.
1: Yeah, well, they're involved in the uh, certainly in the, uh, you know, in 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 the investigation, well, yeah, because they retrieved yeah. the. Well, the stuff from the, the uh, field and so
2: on. So, okay, uh, I, I guess my question would be why? I mean, w- clearly, if they're claiming, if uh, Clinton and others are claiming that this was a merely a, uh, not merely, I don't want to, but if this was a mechanical failure
1: or at least a Accident result a bombing. Uh, why the FBI? Why the CIA? Why did this happen? Well, this, I'm going to quote uh, Vernon Gross, who's, uh, I talk about in the book and also wrote a, a blurb for the book. I just had to, um, I'm not sure I can read it in a slide here, but, uh, and since I'm the oldest literate American, doesn't work. <laughs> anyhow, he, he blurbs the book in the back. Uh, he, uh, was an NTSB board member. Uh-huh. And on the night of July seventeenth, 1996, I should say he was a former one. He wasn't uh, active at the time. CNN called him in to give on-the-air commentary. He was there all night, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, I've never seen anything like this. He goes, the FBI was there immediately running this investigation. He said, this is against the law. If, even if they can only, and, and he explained, he goes, the NTSB has to call in the FBI when there's an accident, when there's a crime. Right. And the NTSB determines that. He said, "In this case, they came in bully boy style. They took over immediately." He said he had never seen anything like that. And Gross is, a, you know, a high-level guy and you know all the right credentials. He went from being a believer in the government theory now to a total opponent of it. He, in fact, he's you know, write a, wrote it said this is the best account he's ever seen of the of the crash. And um, and there's other high-level people like that who turn once they saw the evidence. Uh, and more will turn. Once they have the green light to do so, and and Doug, you're right. It's this is the people who are watching the show have the power of as a, a mass to push this story up in the bottom.
2: And, and that's what it really makes me um, hopeful and very excited because. I I really believe through audience participation and it's going to take every one of us every one of us mm-hmm. to you know we always talk about what can we do? I mean things are so bad, you know, what can we do? We don't we're powerless. No, no. We have the power. We c- we can create or prompt changes. So it's going to take all of us to to push the book up to number 1, create a stir about what's in this book, obviously, and to do that, you know, you get to get the book. But uh, Tell family, tell friends. Make sure Jack Cashel, who again I believe is the foremost authority on TWA eight hundred, the events. Um, if you read the book, you, you, you'll see. Um, we need. To, I mean, he needs to, to, to tell his story everywhere because at the there's end, there's no statute of limitations on murder, absolutely. especially the murder of two hundred and thirty people. Yeah, I mean, think of what it was your 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 mom or dad or child or brother or sister, my goodness, it would be devastating. Yeah, and, and you, you don't answer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm in touch with a lot of the families and they are uh, beside themselves. You know, they the word closure is overused, but right. they would certainly like that, you know?
2: Well, okay, getting back to the NTSB and CIA and FBI, uh, didn't, Jim Hall was the NTSB chairman, chairman at the time, right? Did, did, would, did he roll over and just give up, give up his investigation?
1: No, Hall didn't have to roll over because he came to the job pre-rolled. Pre-rolled. Uh, he was a, a, a Gore crony from Tennessee. In fact, when he was named um, chairman of the NTSB, with you know the even someone the Washington Post said this nightly, they said uh, he's a. A middle-aged white man whose best credential for the job seems to be his driver's license, you know? He no talent. He, <laughs> he replaced like a yeah. guy who was a physicist and pilot, you know, uh, and an air, you know, astrophysicist or something, you know, from Princeton. Yep. So they, uh, quickly, with the Clintons, they corrupted every board, uh, they could with their cronies, just like they did the Fannie Mae board, you know? So they had no trouble, uh, pushing, uh, Jamie Gorelick through there, you know? Hmm. Uh, so, when he takes over, he and then they have the number two guy at the NTSB, is really the Clinton guy. Jim Hall is a pliable Gore crony. The number two guy, Robert Francis, was the Clinton guy, and is even the people who were, wrote favorably about him said he reported directly to the Clintons. It's their number two people, virtually in every department. You know, well, uh, and, and that's the pattern. Like I've Sandy seen. Berger, a, a deputy the, NSA guy. You know,
2: and, and the, you know. And again, I remember—I I don't know why—I remember these these weird things. But I remember the um, Sandy Berger when he went into the National Archives and was removing documents. And you know, I was—I was thinking at the time, what doc, You know, what documents would he be after? But uh, you, you touch on this as well, very, very well, in in, in your book. And and you know, what's, um, uh, you know, I. How does uh, we're, since we're getting close to the top of the hour here, um, you, you want to touch on the, like the document removal, or you want to continue elsewhere? Uh, want well, uh, well, Let else
1: me or... just talk about it, introduce Sandy Berger to the discussion. Yeah, we'll come yeah, back okay. to him later on. Uh, he was the deputy national security advisor. He was the political guy. Right. So when the subject turned to politics, Tony Lake, who was the national security advisor, would admit, "I will. I left the room," uh, but uh, Sandy was the deputy. I talked to Colonel Buzz Patterson uh it was really a great guy and he carried a nuclear football for the president, mm-hmm. if you recall. He and he's written a book or two about this subject and uh that night I said, Where were you on the night of july seventeenth, nineteen ninety six? He said, I was in the White House, you know. And I said, uh, he said, but I was kept out of the loop. You know, usually I'm involved in you know bringing information here and there, whatever. Because he had obviously the top, top, top uh security classification. And then I said, Where were the Clintons? He said they were in the family quarters, the family, in the residence. They weren't down in the situation room with everyone else. And I, I said, who was there with them? He said, you know, the only person I could identify, and this, he was a little tentative about this, but I'm almost sure, he goes, is Sandy Berger. <laughs> and now, so when, when uh, eight years later, Sandy Berger shows up in the National Archives, uh, don't think that's not connected to TWA Flight 800 because it was.
2: Yeah, it's an, a very interesting connection that you make with respect to, to Sandy Berger. And, and it's even more interesting, the uh, the fact that the Clintons remained in, in the residence and not they didn't go down to the Situation Room, obviously. I mean, you know, or Bill Clinton, anyway, didn't go down to the Situation Room. Oh,
1: neither did Hillary. They were together. Oh. And I know I have from her logs, I know they were there together. Okay. Yeah. All
2: right. And, and obviously, that's... Who's going to answer that three a.m. phone call?
3: Well,
1: that's well. It's interesting you raise that because um, in uh, one of the the uh, orthodox government rehashed CNN books, uh, it is at three a.m. that Bill Clinton calls down to Tony Lake, who's not in the White House, and uh, situated family room, and and says, "Dust off those contingency plans," which means that they're they're going to set in motion a scheme to distract the public from what really happened. And that is for two weeks. They're going to blame Iran for this, um, and but it's at 3 a.m. And 3 then Hillary m. does those 3 a.m. commercials wow. on Barack Obama.
2: Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, I, 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 and I don't want to give away anything necessarily, um, or or um, put things out of order because, but but I mean, this is a huge story. We were very close to war, weren't we?
1: Well, we were faking war. Okay. For a, a while. Yes. And in fact, uh, Richard Clark, and he deserved his own um avatar yeah. to be hoisted on, um describes this chapter of the book, uh the almost war of nineteen ninety six, you know.
3: Yeah, he was a counter uh, counterterrorism expert. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as well uh, he had a degree from MIT. Um He went to UP actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: He went
2: to where uh, University, of, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania for uh, a okay. uh,
3: bachelor, okay. and then the MIT for uh, his master's. He, at, he, he
2: wrote "Against All Enemies" too, yeah. folks. Um, yeah, that. Uh,
1: and he's, he's he plays a role in this book that's fascinating.
2: Oh, yeah, indeed. And of course, he worked for the State Department during uh, Reagan's presidency in 1992. Uh, Bush appointed him to, the chair, uh, to chair of the Counterterrorism Security Group, and uh, yeah, he had a seat on the National Security. Uh, Council, but uh, yeah, very interesting indeed. All right, as we run up to, you know, what I am missing because of our <laughs> the, the clock. The, the, it doesn't seem a little <laughs> strange here. Yeah, usually the clocks, you know, we can, in we front can of see this. Place. Yeah, uh, we, we've got about, about three minutes left at the top of the hour. What um, in this three minutes here? I, I mean, again, uh, you make a great case in this book, but to, to to cap off the next three minutes here, give us a tidbit here where. The next hour is going to take us because, folks, you got to stay tuned for this.
1: Well, let's talk about Richard Clark for just a second, okay? And then talk about the way the media work. Uh, what's fascinating is th- this is the almost war of nineteen ninety six. Yep. And yet, when Bill Clinton writes his memoirs, uh, oh yeah, the number one news story in nineteen ninety six, the almost war of nineteen ninety six, is nine hundred book page book one paragraph. Right. That's right. Hillary Clinton, her memoir, isn't my life or whatever, her 500 page book. She goes to, to meet with the families and at JFK and hugs them and whatnot. One third of one sentence. That's right. George Stephanopoulos in his memoir. He's in the situation room that night. Nothing. George Tenet in his memoir. He's the uh, assistant director of central intelligence. He's the guy who's running this whole scam. Nothing. Um, Leon Panetta who's the one who calls uh, Clinton with the news that the plane went down. Nothing. Uh, Dick Morris refers to it as one of three terrorist attacks that summer. Yep. Beyond that, nothing in their memoirs. It's a black hole. It, it falls right through the cracks. Or uh, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, 1996-97. The CIA is deeply involved. Everything the CIA does is in that, that committee yearbook. Nothing. Um this story is not being told except in two thousand four when Richard Clark comes forward to tell his version and maybe we could pick that up after. The okay, that's good.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, pick that up on the other side. I, I, yeah, it's an amazing show. I mean, yeah, um Hillary Clinton, five hundred and twenty eight pages, her book Living History, the memoir, one third of a sentence. Yeah. When I read that. And I did have to to check, we've got a copy in our library and, and you're right. Um I can't remember what page it was on. but Right, uh, Louis Free,
1: oh, two yeah, sentences. Yeah, yeah. Head of the FBI, the biggest FBI job during his tenure, Yeah, two sentences. Two wow. Indecisive sentences. In we didn't know what it was, blah, 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 you know.
3: That's amazing. Um, all those people uh, leaving out key details and information, even their own insights as to what happened on that day. Uh, to me, speaks uh, more of guilt than of anything else. Right, and it's
1: also you know sort of you know uh, sort of preparing the way for Loretta Lynch too. You know,
3: yeah, very <laughs> to much.
1: Redact uh, <laughs> the obvious from. Uh...
3: We're talking with Jack Cashill in studio. His book, TWA 800. We'll be right back with Mr. Cashill after the short messages. Stay
2: with us on this Tuesday right. edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. The crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy.
3: This is the Global Star Radio Network.
0: exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again, as Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood blood
2: And hey, welcome back, folks, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. This is kind of our inaugural—what an inauguration of our of our new setup here, our new studio. So glad that you're joining us, whether it's by Global Star or BTR or uh, here on our official YouTube channel. Our special in studio guest is Mr. Jack Cashel, the crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy: TWA Flight 800. TWA 800. The name of his book coming out July 5th. Right here. Folks, we can change history together. You know, we always say, well, there's nothing we can do. Yeah, there is. We can number one, drive his book up to number one in, in, on sales. Make, make people be, take a look at the, the true facts of TW, TWA flight 800. What happened on that date 20 years ago next month, uh, an important anniversary coming up on July 17th of 2016, of course, July 17th, uh, 1996 is when uh, 230 people lost their lives in that incident, and uh, uh, Mr. Cashel has done just an excellent job in documenting uh, 200, I think, 60 pages of, and out of that maybe 20 pages of notes, very detailed notes about uh, uh, that, that back up his assertions, his claims. A tremendous investigative reporter, certainly well worth the read. Very important. And, and what does that have to do with the things happening today? It's the same playbook. And, you know, there is a chapter, Jack, in here you he wrote, um, and the chapter is Benghazi Moment, right? Yeah, the Benghazi uh, Moment, right. It's the same playbook, basically, that we're seeing today with a lot of other things, and we've seen over the past, but you expose it very well. And, uh, of course, again, our our guest, Jack Cashel, dot com, Right. Yes. come Okay. Right. And uh, Amazon uh, for the book coming out on July fifth. But let's uh, let's push it up to number one all across the the, the venues. Uh, that would that would make me happy. I, I read this. It it really he, he, Father's Day. I read. A lot a lot of this. I finished on Father's I was thing.
1: watching the U.S. Open. <laughs> That's really, yeah. wow. And the Cleveland Cavaliers, by
2: the way. Yes, yes. Kudos to Cleveland. Yes. Yeah. Finally. Uh, but, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm always happy too. Um, but no, you did a, an outstanding job on this. All right. So, the first hour, we kind of set the stage on a number of issues. Um, we have the NTSB kind of taking it back, not kind of, taking a back seat to, to the FBI, and of course CIA involvement in this. Where do you want to go Which
3: now Which is here? a break of a regular protocol and procedure when it comes right. to the airline investigation. Yeah, Title Four. Yeah,
1: so we uh, left the last hour talking about Richard Clark, who yeah. plays a bizarre role in this whole phenomenon. And, uh, Richard Clark is, you know, we mentioned, was the uh, anti czar under Clinton. And unlike, uh, you know, because he was allegedly nonpartisan and served under other administrations, and including the Bush administrations, I think both of them. Um, but he was seduced by his access to power under the Clintons, because they took him seriously. And he wrote a book, there he is on the screen, and he, he wrote a book called Against All Enemies. And this is the way, the, the, boy, this is the way the, the media work. He testifies before the 9-11 Commission in 2004, and then his book comes out like three days later, He's on 60 Minutes. He gets all 60 Minutes on 60 Minutes, right? He's on Meet the Press a week later, an hour of that, and then his book shoots up to number one on the bestseller list. And uh, the the media are loving it because the thesis of his book is that uh, that George W. Bush uh, did a bad job in the fight against terror and was responsible for September 11th. Well, then Clark is testifying before the 9-11 Commission and he says something interesting. He says, "You know, you could forgive an old security, uh, you know, a security guy or whatever. Uh, that we haven't talked about aviation terror for the last five or six years. And you know, part of my thesis is the reason they couldn't talk about aviation terror was if they raised that issue, they raised the question of TWA Flight 800."
3: Due to the unanswered questions. Due to the un- yeah. unanswered
1: questions, exactly. And so Clark in his book is the only one of the principals to talk about TWAA Flight 800 in depth. And the book and the, his narrative is a a mixture of braggadocio and just stupid mistakes, careless mistakes. It's like he doesn't even care because he knows, even though he spends like six or eight pages on TWAA Flight 800, he knows the media will not pay any attention to that because what he's saying is Bush did a terrible job in the war on terror, right? That's the, the takeaway. And he did a terrible job because he didn't take Richard Clark seriously. But uh, Clark's story is is simply, it has to be read. I mean, when I first read this book, I was astonished. He talks about, for instance, first of all, he's got no aviation experience. I don't know what he's doing involved in this. And he goes to the the hangar in on Long Island at Calverton, where they're you know doing the investigation, and he talks about this is roughly about four weeks after the crash. Uh, based on his own timeline, he talks about walking through the hangar, and he uh, talks to a mechanic, to some random mechanic who's there, and and then he, uh, you have to, those who are listening the last hour know there was a missile, but that that's already off the table. So he walks over to this mechanic. And he says to him, he goes, "Oh, is this where the bomb went off?" Right? He 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 recreates this conversation, <laughs> and the mechanic says to him, "He goes, well, this is where the explosion was, but it wasn't a bomb." And and Richard Clark says, "No, what was it then? It wasn't a bomb." He goes, "No, you know, we had this you know, these tired old 747s with these leaky gas tanks, and and they, you know, and uh, some spark of faulty fuel pump or something uh, sets a spark off, and the whole fuel tank just blew up spontaneously, right?" And he recreates this whole conversation. Then Clark says he goes back to uh, Washington. He meets with his boy, uh, with Tony Lake, who's the National Security Advisor, and Leon Panetta, who's the Chief of Staff, and then he draws them a diagram of the 747 and he explains his theory. And then he says we're all positively encouraged because it was just about that time, and this is where we left off the larger narrative, that the authorities were going to move from. First, the missile thing lasted about 24 hours before they got that off the table. Then we live with the bomb for at least a month. Now they're about ready to move to a mechanical failure. And Richard Clark, the hero of the hour, the hero in his own book, the hero in his own mind, <laughs> the legend in his own mind, is the one who discovers uh, the reason for the mechanical failure. And no one questioned him on this. It, when when you well you guys have been around long enough to be to know how this stuff works. But, sure, uh, it's just astonishing when you see it. So, so he, he was
2: he took it from the the narrative from the the uh, bomb scenario, Yeah, from the well from the bomb scenario, which was from the missile to the mechanical failure. He, he was the origin of that, basically, uh, on orders from. Ostensibly from, from above, right?
1: Yeah, he, he takes credit for that. And uh, wh- why is he on Long Island in the first place? What's right. he doing in the hangar? When he, when he's talking about it, here's what's really curious about it, too. He goes, I went up to Long Island and I went to the hangar in Beth Page. Well, no, it's at Calverton. It's 45 right. miles further east. You know, get it right. You know, he never gets the height of the. Uh, the he says, when I first, uh, when he, you know, he talks about, it, he called this meeting on the night of July 17th. You know, by the way, for most domestic plane crashes, there's. NTSB takes over. There's no uh, high-level security meetings in the White House. And this will say why there was in a second, address one of the questions one of your listeners called in. Um, And then he says, the plane was at 17,000 feet. The FAA said, we have no reason to know why it blew out of the sky. Well, no, the plane was at 13,760 feet. The 17,000 was the later CIA concoction. Uh, And the FAA knew exactly why they called the meeting. And it had nothing to do with the eyewitnesses. It had to do, and this will uh, address your uh, your uh, listener's question here. It had to do with the radar data out of Tricon in New York, out of that that they saw, in the air traffic controllers saw, because what they saw was a uh, a object speeding towards uh, TWA Flight 800 on their radar screens and intersecting it at the moment TWA Flight 800 or TWA 800. In fact, that's where I got the title, just that the the radar data reading, TW800, disappears from the screen. That's what set off these high-level meetings in Washington. That's why Richard Clark called in the anti-terror group. That's why the FAA, the CIA, the NTSB, et cetera, gathered in Washington that night. As um, one fellow there with the NTSB, Ron Schleed says, and he's, he's quoted in a book uh, like one of the rehashes. He says, you know, it, we looked at it, it looked like something... Uh, uh, was gaining speed and overtook TWA Flight 800. Well, that's what happened. That's what started the meetings. And yet, as the reader says, what happens to that tape? Well,
2: <laughs> um, uh, there, uh, yeah, where, exactly. Where is that, that tape? So, so what you're saying is radar from uh, uh, Islip, New York, I suspect, right?
1: No, it's actually in Westbury.
2: Westbury? That's okay. where the
1: TRACON uh, Center is.
2: Okay. Yeah. All right. It's so, on Long Island, yeah. All right. Well, regardless, the the radar showed uh, an object, uh, an unidentified object. Um, the, I would say the tra- trajectory of that object from the uh, from the uh, uh, surface to you know uh, from the ocean or the ground to to TWA Flight Eight Hundred in the past intersecting or stopping at the. Uh, at the moment of of, of uh, crash, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, and I can add some detail here that's really interesting because in in the last two weeks, I've started running a series on American Thinker, and one of the people who contacted me as a result of it worked at that tra- at the Westbury Center at TracON, uh, and he um, worked on the same screen as where this was seen. He came in just mm-hmm. after it happened, and so he saw the tape. And and it got into a little. It's in. It, these are kind of nice little controversies among people who know more than I do, because uh, he said it was rising. He said that he could discern because he had had a military experience learning his radar. He said it was rising vertically, okay. and then uh, a lot of civilian controllers says, "No, you can't see a vertical rise, but he insists you can." Regardless, they all agreed that this object, this tar, this uh, intersected TWA, and TWA immediately disappeared from the screen. Uh, he came in and, you know, he saw it that night. Uh, the guy who saw it in real time briefed him because he had to answer the questions from the FBI. The next day, this, my air traffic controller comes back to the center and, uh, he says to his boss, he goes, um, can, can, let me, uh, see that, can we look at that tape again? He says, no. He says, why? He says, it's gone. And he says, you can't leave it here. He said, we have to keep this here because of FAA regulations as to, uh, to Determine, you know, whether this was an accident or what. You know, mm-hmm. it was gone, never to be seen again. And and they, he said to a supervisor, "Have you ever seen anything like this before?" He said, "Never." You know, and every part of that investigation. You when you talk to these people, they're talking about something unprecedented. In this case, it was it was immediately sent to Washington, and that's what set the wheels in motion in Washington. That's why Richard Clark calls this meeting. That's why. Everyone gets engaged. That's why the Clintons repair to the family quarters, um, and that's why the almost war of nineteen ninety six is set in motion. Uh, you know, for histories, you know, to be ignored by historians. You know,
2: all right. What, what about we, we, when you mentioned radar? Uh, there was a reference in your book to um, surface. I'm sorry, surface of vessels, boats in the yes. area. Yes. Um, when 800, when 800 went down, boats and ships up and down that Long Island coast, many converged on a crash site. Okay, now, um, there were actually uh, two debris, two areas of debris, right? right two debris fields, uh, sort of. And well, they just of,
1: divide them up artificially, and it's right. basically three, but it's. You okay,
2: alright. Which I want to ask you about, too. Uh, I want to, I want to ask you about the, uh, um, how this plane broke up and how it does not fit with the uh, uh, center tank explosion kind of thing. And then, Dan, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but on the
3: screen, Eric had the reconstructed plane right. of TWA yep. 800. What it looked like after the investigators put it back together, and you can see how it had broken apart in the middle, just like. Uh, well, yeah, and, and,
2: and Jack had, uh, uh, had really gone into good detail about what happened in the hangars and, and such. Um, when I read it, I, I just, I, I mean, I was astounded as to the behavior, the actions, the activities of some of the people, the investigators. But I, I guess my question is surface vessels here. Any boats in the area that... uh
1: Well, yeah, and this is curious, is that uh, about a year or so after the crash, uh, Louis Chillerio uh, Shul- there, the number two FBI guy in the scene, I, I probably mispronounced his name, but he's testifying. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, we, we tracked down every single boat and ship, uh And we uh checked them all out, except for one. Yeah, This was the one that was fleeing the scene, right? And it was large enough to be picked up on the radar, and it was fleeing the scene at like 30 to 35 knots, which is the speed of a cruiser, a Navy cruiser. And it was only three miles from the scene at the time it happened, and it went in the opposite direction, which is a, a nautical no-no. I mean, it's like you probably right. be, be tried for it. You know, it's a sufficiently... Uh, uh, a sufficient violation of the understanding of what a, a ship should do. It should be looking for super survivors. But it fled, and that was the one ship, even though it was probably the largest ship in that area, that they were unable to identify. Yeah.
2: And, uh, amazing. And, yeah, and yeah you, you, folks, again, the book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and Conspiracy conspiracy uh check it out on on com or amazon.com certainly let's make it uh go to the top the facts in here the investigative results in here i mean it's just a it's a beautiful read i'll just i'll just say that um i, I don't want to get ahead i mean because this is an investigation i don't want to ask you leading questions necessarily and i don't want to get ahead of myself so i'm going to kind of just let you walk us through where you, you know how you want to how you want to. Um, uh, provide the information on this book only because I, um I, I, the way you've written it it was it, you know i've read so many investigative reports over 30 years and none of them boy you talk about some dry reading but your way of writing and getting the information across to, to the reader is just amazing here but i don't want to put uh the cart before the horse, so to speak, here. So go ahead and and just walk us, continue to walk us through. Sure. Hold our hands here if you don't mind. Right. Um,
1: By the way, and and you're right, what I tried to, I I write it as a first-person account of my own journey from skeptic to, uh, I mean, from skeptic of the skeptics to uh, understanding that, yes, the government was capable of pulling off this incredible cover-up. And for me, it's like like Alice in Wonderland. It's like a journey into things that you had never thought you could ever experience. And I, I also, you know, I'm not an aviator. and I'm not an engineer. And most of these kind of books are written by people who are and uh, they lose the reader because they're talking about parts. But this is really a story about people and about politics. And so I try to tell the story of the people who really got into this. Like my my partner James Sanders, his wife Elizabeth, uh, the Tom Stalkup and Christina Borgeson who makes the the documentary, Ray Lair, this uh, investigator, the family members who are affected by this, who've been all pursuing the truth all along, and it's and it's really a, a really pretty stirring saga of uh, of people who will not yield, who will not give up, the eyewitnesses who refuse to be uh, subdued. Mm-hmm. Um, then side stories like that of Kurt Weldon, the congressman.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, from our is, state here.
1: Uh, right. Who, um, tried desperately to break this open and what happened to him. Um, I or, finally
2: raid. Yeah. Yeah. Hate um, that when it happens. So
1: it's, it's a human interest story and not, it's not a story of airplane parts. It's a story of people and, and That's their right. passions and their pursuits. Well, let's get back to the main narrative. Sure. And, and that is, okay, for a month or more, the New York Times, by the way, the FBI spoke exclusively to New York Times, or almost exclusively. So, and the New York Times became extremely dependent on that source, and they prided themselves on it, uh, and they were became corrupted by it, hmm. if they weren't pre-corrupted going in, which is always an issue.
3: Yeah, they were. They, they were one of uh, many newspapers to be owned by uh, the. Federal Reserve elitist, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, that's why David Rockefeller in his memoirs said, you know, thank you to the New York Times and the Washington Post and other publications who helped hide our work for over 40 years. Without that yeah, help, right. we would not be able to, to get to the level we're we where we are at today. Don't tell.
1: And, <laughs> the, you know, it's odd because like I talked uh, at some point to the, the guy who covered it for the Washington Post, and he was upset because he, like everyone else, was shut out of the information flow. So the FBI communicated through the New York Times, and the New York Times became essentially a, uh, you know, an echo chamber, and they just sort of re- reinforced what the FBI told them. And in the beginning, there no reason to doubt the FBI, and like for about two weeks. And then after that, the story began to change, and the problem became, uh, as I sort of mentioned in the last hour, is that the FBI oversold or sold very well the bomb story. So for weeks. There are new revelations about explosive residue found on, on the plane, PETN and RDX and found on the wing. It's found in the interior cabin. It's found here. It's found there.
3: It's found inside the the actual plane from rows 17 through 19, yep. rows 15 through
1: 25.
2: Yeah, right. And somebody went to jail for this, right? James Sanders. James Sanders did for trying to test it, yeah. Right, right. So, so from the <laughs> hangar, okay, Um can you? Because I've gotten questions about this, and I've read about, I've read James Sanders' story, and yeah. I kind of I, I know how it starts, and I know how it ends. But I know a lot of people out there may not be familiar with it. So you want to just kind of give us a once-over on the James Sanders, how, you know, what happened and and what the results were from the independent testing of, of the material.
1: Yeah, I, you know, what happened is that uh, James Sanders uh, and James and I are very tight. In fact, I have a, I need you know, text message from here right now. Uh, he still he doesn't give up. And he reminds me a lot of Kalstrom. They're about the same age, Jim Kalstrom, the head of the FBI. They're both medium height, bulldoggy kind of yep. tenacious, you know. little you know, Jim Sanders, James Sanders has a good sense of humor. He needs it to have persisted where, as <laughs> far as he's gone. But, uh, his wife, Elizabeth, was a trainer. And so 53 TWA employees were killed in this crash. And TWA is like a family and it's like having a, You know, the, the guy I talked to today, the pilot, he had, he went to 14 funerals. You know what I mean? Uh Instead of Elizabeth. And at one of those memorial services, she ran into this pilot named, and a manager who's working the investigation named Terry Mm Stacy. And she always thought of him as a real straight arrow, go by the rules kind of guy. So when he came to her and said, he goes, um, is your husband still an investigative reporter? And she said, yeah. He goes, uh, you know, I'd kind of like to talk to him. And, what Elizabeth did, she introduced Terry, Stacy, to her husband James, and for that, she was uh, indicted and tried as a, a for conspiracy and convicted in federal court. That was it.
2: But Terry had removed, right? I, yeah. I and now Terry up. was
1: like many of the people involved was very distressed by what the FBI was doing to this investigation. Mm-hmm. They were not letting them see the information. They were they'd ask about the results of tests, and they weren't told. Uh, yeah,
3: Stacy brought residue to the attention of the FBI, and uh, weeks later they refused to share their laboratory findings. Well, it, on the residue, that's yeah. Right.
2: Uh, I mean, uh, Terry sent the little—I mean, a little piece of foam, right? To, to uh, Joe. Well, this
1: was after, you know uh, Joe's right. Is once he was frustrated, he couldn't because the FBI wouldn't tell him. And they all thought that this was you know, very uh, indicative of something, and so that's when he and Sanders were talking, and he said. So they said, why don't you scrape off some of that residue, you know, on the backs of the seats, this orange streak across a, a whole section of rows, and I'll have it tested in an independent lab and we'll see what we come up with. Well, Stacy goes in and it won't scrape. <laughs> I, and that, and that little detail it ends up affecting a lot of lives. So he takes a pinch of foam rubber he, and he FedExes it, he doesn't use the U.S. mails to Sanders. Sanders has it tested. And it proves a positive match for, uh, you know, explosive residue. Uh, Sanders goes public with this. Here's a picture of James on your TV. Yep, yep. And um, and uh, the a California newspaper prints up his results. And then the FBI then knew they had a real problem on their hand is not only had this pinch of foam rubber left, they didn't know what else had, right? So they got really panicky. Uh, and they went after the Sanders because they were vulnerable. Elizabeth had to go into hiding... Yeah, in a trailer park in Oregon because she didn't want to give up Stacy, you know. And um, she was afraid that she wouldn't be able not to resist. You know, she loses her job, and she loved TWA, and that hurt her probably more than even getting arrested. Then they finally, through their own channels, they found their way to Stacy. They threatened his family. They threatened his pension. And then he finally pled guilty, and then the they took the Sanders to trial in and, and mm-hmm. a federal court. Uh, the Sanders were not allowed, Jim was not allowed to tell the court that he was a reporter. He'd written two books already. They they couldn't talk about that, and they tried him as a common criminal for stealing airplane parts, right? The residue wasn't a part of the airplane, but the pinch of foam rubber was. And there was an ocean of foam rubber. I mean, it could have, you know, they had, wow. you know, it didn't matter. Yeah. And then that's what the story that triggered me, that got me involved. When I saw that, I said, "Boy, they're, these people are serious. They're playing hardball here, you know." And that's what got uh, uh, everyone in trouble. Now, the, getting back to what I was talking about earlier, though, why would why did they have to have this tested outside the FBI? Is because after the FBI sold the bomb story, and there's explosive residue all over the plane, uh, above the fold, headlines, rinds, uh, uh, explosion of the vice and cabin, blows it up. How could they untell that story? Right. Yeah. And they had to because the uh, White House decided that they couldn't live with a bomb or a missile. They wanted mechanical failure, just like Richard Clark had discovered. So how do you untell that story? Right. So the same day that the New York Times headline ran, "Prime Evidence Found," this is three days before the Democratic <laughs> Convention. The FBA FAA began a coerced worldwide search. For a proof that a dog training, explosive training exercise had taken place on board the Flight 800 plane. Now, they'd never systematized these records. They're all done randomly by the local police. So, this, you can imagine the man hours that went into pouring through these records until they find out this is. I would say, conceivably, the most single corrupt moment in the whole investigation, on everyone's part. Um, they find a plane... No, they find that there was a test done in St. Louis, six weeks before the crash, on board a 747, on the same day, the TWA, the TWA 800 plane was there, right? Mm-hmm. So... And when you look at the uh, the development in the news stories cycle, first we have a uh, a story breaking out of Washington from Jim Hall and the NTSB, uh, you know, a political hack right. it says now uh, they we're beginning to think that maybe it was a me- mechanical malfunction after all, and so the people who've been reading and saying how could it be mechanical? There was explosive residue found all over the plane. Well, the next day, right? <laughs> They break the story that there had been a dog training exercise aboard the TWA Flight 800 plane in St. Louis, and the careless police officer spilled explosive residue all over the plane. Now, and you know, and I I checked the chronology here. By that date, no one in the FBI had talked to the officer. They released that before they talked to the officer. No one in the New York Times had talked to the officer. They released that story. Right? Now the investigators on Long Island, the serious ones, they'd said it was like a shot a punch in the stomach. All those explosive residue traces now, we we can't take this to court. We can't take this the next step because it's a sloppy, right. careless police officer. Well, here's the horrible part of all this is that just with the slightest bit of investigation, the New York Times would have discovered three things. One is that the officer only reported the time of his exercise. This is according to the FBI documents. I, I go, I use their own documents here to, to hang him. They only reported the time of the exercise and 747, right? Mm. That's all that he reported mm-hmm. on his on his report.
2: Pretty vague.
1: Uh, right. He also reported where he placed the explosives. And he also reported what kind of explosive training aids he placed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, from his timetable, uh, the earliest he could have finished that plane was twelve fifteen p.m. Uh, just the afternoon, because he started at, like at ten forty five. It takes ninety minutes. You got to place the things. Got to get the dog. You know, let the dog search for them, find them, take the dog back. Well, at twelve fifteen p.m., uh, the flight eight hundred plane had four hundred fifty people on board. Uh, and was about ready to leave for Hawaii 15 minutes later, right? Uh Now, sitting next to it was a clone 747, totally empty, that um, would not take off for another another several hours. The officer did his exercise on an empty plane. You have to. Totally sterile environment. Now, to load a 747 for a flight, yeah, they start at least 90 minutes ahead of time, stocking and loading and yep. the flight attendants, the crew has to be there an hour ahead of time. Uh, the, uh, officer didn't see a single soul during his whole thing. Then, if you check where <laughs> he places explosives, that did not correlate at all with where the explosive residue was found. Um, and, and finally, there was the, the, uh, Composition of the explosive training aids in no way matched the RDX or PETN that was found on the plane. So it was a triple whammy. Any, the least bit of scrutiny, the New York Times could have busted that story the same day it came out. But they never talked to the cop. Let's see, six years after this incident, after the cop has been thoroughly humiliated, And, and scolded by the FAA and made to be a laughing stock by the FBI, him and his dog, Carlo. Uh, I intervened. I had a, uh, my father's a cop. He was a a police detective in Newark, New Jersey. So was my uncle and Mm -hmm. several of my cousins were cops. So I have, you know, I feel very comfortable in that world. Uh, one of my cop friends from New Jersey, I asked him, could you intervene with this guy and see if he'll talk to me? You know, there's a black guy. His name's Herman Burnett. I talked to him in 2002. He said, "You're the first person in media to contact me." Really? Yeah. Wow. He said, "I didn't spill anything. I didn't lose anything." He goes, "I hate the way they twisted my words. They humiliated me, you know." And and he is still still he said, "I am." Can I say this on the air? <laughs> to this day, you know. No, I, uh, it's
2: it's almost like, yeah. Uh, when I when I read the account, it was. I, I was thinking, my goodness, did this, did this police officer just kind of, you know, have leaky bags and stuff flying everywhere? And, I mean, come on. But, no, I mean, he's certainly vindicated by, uh, you know, by, by the facts.
1: And then, That's you know, uh, about a year later, uh, uh, no, maybe not, maybe six months later, Jim Calstrom, the head of the FBI investigation, is called before a congressional investigating committee. Yeah, And there's a big story here, too. But, and they ask him, uh the by this time certain investigators had been doing their work, especially accuracy in media and Reed Irvine. Uh and they knew that the whole dog story thing was a crock and they had the evidence to prove it. They had right. the pilot activity sheet, they had the, the timetables, all all that. The FBI's own timetables. And so uh Jim Traffican, the congressman who, by the way, just gets sent to prison after he does this, um, says to um Calstrom, he goes, uh now, we have reason to believe. Are you sure that that plant, that the exercise was done at the air plant? Oh, absolutely. positive, sure. And yes. then he goes, and it was some, some you know, cop with leaking chemicals dripping all over the place, and it just happened to drip exactly in the place where we found the explosive residue. And he's just, there's no nice way to say what Kalstrom had done there. It was a multi-tiered lie, you know, and he lied about the placement of it, the composition, and the and the airplane itself. Right. Uh, and, you know, they knew he was lying and they had a hard time proving it at that point. And Calstrom, I mean, Trafficking, who's uh, from not too far from here and yeah. uh, paid for his transgression because he was then investigated and sent to prison. He may have deserved it, but then you could probably say that for half the people in Congress.
2: No, that's true. Yeah, I've got some contacts that that uh, know the, the backstory with Trafficking. So, anyway, yeah, it, it's. Uh, very interesting how he had uh, uh how that all came down
1: but once that story broke yeah. the media bought it uh totally yeah and the whole explosive residue thing went away and now it's just from the next 4 years 3 years until the NTSB closes this case mechanical failure then the search for some bizarre explanation as to why a perfectly functional 747 blows up
2: yeah yeah exactly well well okay we're we're, we're Kallstrom keeps coming up in this. Uh, the, uh, uh, I mean, w- w- what's up with Kalstrom? I mean, you know, if you've seen him lately than... on
1: Fox News where he's their, like, terrorist yeah. expert, yeah, he's been great. And it's shocking. I mean, he was up there the other night and and Megyn Kelly had to cut him off. I don't know if you saw this, but he says, uh, you know, he says there's a wet blanket of political correctness that's it's, it's totally devastating our ability to seek, you know, Islamic terrorists. And, right. And then he said, like, and then he goes on to say, on the air, he said, Hillary Clinton's number one aide, Huma Abedin. Her family's a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, you know? Yeah. And then you see Megyn Kelly getting nervous, and, and then she cuts him off, you know? <laughs> um And he's been doing this. I think he's trying to atone. I think he's a fundamentally decent human being who got roped into this, and then probably for reasons... um I'm sure they would explain the reason of the national security. I'm sure they didn't tell, hey, we got to get reelected, you know. Right. Um,
2: mm.
1: cause I, yeah, he's working against, obviously working against Hillary Clinton's best interests right now. Uh, and, but yet for the next couple of years, he just lied after lie after lie. And I think he's trying to atone. Interesting. Uh, cause on September 11, 2001, he's on the air with Dan Rather, CBS. And then Dan Rather says, what, what about, what's going on here? He goes, and then he blurts out. The hypocrisy has got to stop. Mm-hmm. And then Rather says, What are you talking about? And then he backs off and says, Well, I don't, I'm not that hypocrisy got this, us to this place, but yes, hypocrisy did get you to that place, and he knew it. So he quits his sinecure at MBNA, you know, where all the FBI play, people go to collect big paychecks until sure. they die, including Louis Free, and takes a job as the top advisor to uh, George Pataki in New York State.
2: Nice.
3: Interesting. Um, Okay. If we can, I want to move on and uh, let me know if we're jumping too far ahead. The black boxes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Denial of public access to results of testing and analysis of abnormal sound data contained near the end of the cockpit voice recorder record. Now, the Flight 800 Cockpit Voice Recorder, or the CVR, recorded a Loud sound just before it stopped functioning, which NTSB investigators attributed to the sound of the explosion that caused the crash, because four different cockpit microphones recorded the explosion, a, new, a unique sound signature could be investigated, but apparently, um, the, okay, the NTSB, the Sound Spectrum Group, was formed to study and cited publications from the previous aircraft explosions. To determine uh, what type of event, or uh, if this was a depressurized event, what caused the crash? Well, what happened to the uh, cockpit voice recorder and, and, and the, the data
1: right, recorder? That's an excellent question. And it's another one of those uh, coincidences here. <laughs> okay, the plane uh, goes down in 120 feet of water about eight miles off the coast of Long Island. mm mm-hmm. uh, You know, right off the Coast Guard Station, right? <laughs> they... Um, you know the rescue people. The first uh, priority is to get bodies. You know, and that's understandable. And but the ships that are out there, then I'd hear the pingers. You know, these little underwater beacons that tell you where the boxes are. The boxes are actually, and they're bright orange. Even. I don't know what they call them black boxes, but uh, and they're indestructible. You know, they're designed to take any kind of abuse mm-hmm. possible. Uh, and yet, the next day. Uh, the NTSB goes out and they can't find them, right? They're not, they can't find them. Uh, and then six days go by, the Navy says, oh, it's too rough, we can't go in They're They're using other devices other than, you know, the things to find them. Now the black boxes will tell you almost always the story of what happens. If there's a mechanical failure, for instance, some months before there's a, a plane, I believe it was a Turkish plane that crashed off the coast of the Dominican Republic in 7,200 feet of water. You know, it's yep. 60 times deeper than uh, this. Navy came right in, found the black boxes, and our Navy, you know, helped out, found the black boxes, and they tell the story. And the cockpit voice recorder, you have three minutes of anguish, which usually happens when there's a mechanical failure. Oh, my God, what's this? Until the end, where all pilots say the same thing Oh, yeah. SH, <laughs> you know, yep. blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, that's oddly, you listen to these tapes, it's not funny, but. They almost all say the same thing, and then if then flight data recorder will then tell you, explain through its you know the instrumentation what went wrong. Right, and they were able to tell that with the Virgin Air flight,
3: the functioning of the engine, yeah, what, right, what was running, right, oh, yeah, what was was working, not, not working.
1: Yeah. Well, with Flight Eight Hundred, the it appeared to uh, independent analysts that the final seconds of each were missing. Nothing comes out of the 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 cockpit voice recorder. And the FDR, except for that one boom sound, and FDR, nothing. They they tell them nothing. So they find them a week later, right? They say, oh, it's too rough. They must be damaged. They must be buried, blah, blah, blah. They're giving all these excuses. And then they show the video of the Navy divers who finally go in, and they find the boxes. It's like stumbling off across the hassock in your living room. They're just sitting there. And (laughs) I pick them up like, oh, (laughs) you can see the video. Oh, I got my... I got the box. They're orange, by the way, and I can't miss them. Um, and then there's, you know, it's just like now. the The Navy divers at this point are innocent. They're they just they're probably happy they found them. Wow, this is great. We went a week, we couldn't find them, and now they're right here. But they were just popped. By. They were. In, I'm sure they were taken immediately that first night and replaced a week later with the final seconds of each edited out. They told the investigators nothing useful about the plane crash. Neither one of them, which is unprecedented, also.
2: And, and you know, when I read that, I, I had to stop and think. I mean, how w- orders like that? I mean, to 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 uh, well, well, to destroy evidence essentially, and then replant the evidence for the Navy to find. And and by the way, w- during the claims, when oh, it was too rough, according to the, the weather records and in and the. In the uh, 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 on site records. It wasn't rough at all.
1: No, and the private divers were putting teams right. in all the time, you know, just right. to, you know, but, for. But I mean, but to think
2: about this, you would have to, for something like that to happen, because we're talking about a crime scene here, obviously the orders would have to come from the very top, right?
1: And they'd have to come immediately. Immediately. Yeah. Like that night or the very next morning. And wow. this, this was, uh, and, you know, and I don't go into too much detail about this in the book because I don't exactly know. I have some, Evidence, some ideas of what happened, where they went and so on forth. There's some information about that. None of it's conclusive. But the evidence of uh, the private analysts who looked at it said, no, the, the flannel seconds are missing. Even the NTSB board member, the one guy, Agolia, uh, admits that, yeah, we're, they're just missing. We don't know what, what happened to them. Well,
2: a lot of things okay. went
1: missing. Airplane parts, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, r- yeah.
1: Residue, glue, you know, uh, radar data, uh, extra uh, eyewitness testimony. You know, it all goes missing.
2: And and it's amazing, the evidence tampering that you get into. Folks, uh, Jack Cashel is our guest. His book, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. It's a fantastic book. It's coming out on July 5th, pre-ordered today. Let's make this, 20 years ago next month, let's make this the main issue here. I would love to see Hillary Clinton have to answer for the Clintons' um, involvement as to what happened on the night of July 17th, 1996, and, and subsequent to that.
1: Right. And, you know, and, um, Doug, when I talk to people in the major media about this, and they, they want to blow it off, or oh, it's 20 years old, I, I said, we're talking about a story here that's bigger than Watergate yep. and its implications. And, in fact, it's so big and so pervasive that I would recommend that there be, like, the South Africa-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because who arrests who at this stage of the game, you know? Good point. Um, But uh, it seems to me that anyone who is involved in the orchestration of this uh, should be immediately removed from office or any consideration of running for office. And, you know, uh, the orchestrators, I think, uh, maybe, maybe we don't give them that same truth and reconciliation part, you know,
2: but but yeah, those people, however, just following orders and, and under the presumption or under the color of national security, I, I can see that. Sure. Throwing compartmentalization, just having that that as you said that quarter mile strip of that, right? You know, knowing what you what you, knowing what you only know and not knowing what you don't know, and acting under the presumption of national security, I can see where. um it, and perhaps somebody's listening to this. Maybe you were involved in some way on that night. If you were, this is the guy to get a hold of.
1: Jay Cashel at AOL dot mm-hmm. com. That's, that's right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, I, and in the last two weeks, I've gotten ten great leads from people. I spent an hour on the phone today with a, a, a pilot who worked the investigation and got thrown off. I spent an hour yesterday with an FBI agent. When I'm start starting to turn FBI agents, that's a good sign. You know, man. Because they target. risk a lot to talk and. I, in the book, as you see, a lot of these guys were willing to put their names on their, yeah. their accounts, you know?
2: Yeah, and that, that's the other thing, too. Very, I mean, yeah, I think the first couple of pages you attributed a, a, a pseudonym to a, an eyewitness, but beyond yes. that... Um, and
1: I have her name. I mean, I know yeah. who she is, and right. uh, but she hasn't come forward publicly herself, so I, I chose just to use her number. Well, and... The other that, thing, that might be a story worth telling right now. Just Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Because uh, I start the book with it. Yeah. And, um, and it was in 2009, and I'm in my Kansas City office, and I get a call from this woman, and she says, uh, Jack Cashel? I said, yeah. She goes, um, I'm witness number 73. Do you know who I am? I said, uh, upside down Nike swoosh. She goes, that's me. You got it. Here's, um, which, and then I read, you know, and I go into her FBI reports, and she's on the beach that night, uh, about eight or ten miles from the, the witness. She's an aviation... She's a travel industry professional with an interest in aviation. And She's watching Flight 800 across the sky. And it catches her attention because it's lower than she thought it should be at that stage. That's how much she knows and how closely she follows these things. It's leveled off, and she's right, it did, because it actually leveled off to allow another plane to pass overhead. She's watching it, and then she sees come up off the horizon, and she describes it, a uh, an object like a flare burning red tip, white smoky contrail. She watches it. She watches it ascend, and then she said it corrects its motion at the last second like an upside-down Nike swoosh. She said it hits the right wing of the airplane, or or at or near the right wing of the airplane. She says then she watches as the front end of the plane breaks off and falls into the sea, right? And then she watches the rest of the plane continue on just for a little bit, then turns into a burning fireball and plunge into the sea she not only saw the missile ascend hit the plane exactly in the right place on the right wing but then she describes the breakup sequence of the airplane weeks before the authorities were able to confirm it that front end of the plane the cockpit and the first class section broke off and fell into the sea first and then the rest of the plane um, uh, soldiered on for you know half mile or whatever and then fell into the sea behind it Nothing extended. And so uh, she called me, and I, I was curious as to why she was calling me. And we reviewed her record. And she said, you know, I've just found out uh, what, the, uh, what happened to my witness. I didn't know that, you know, she didn't know she wasn't alone. You know?
2: That's an amazing,
0: yeah.
1: And so I, and I said, uh, she said, there's certain things. Uh, I said, then tell me why, when the FBI came back to re-interview in April 1997, why did you change your story? Because when the FBI comes back the second time, she says, oh, I don't remember exactly what I saw. I don't know which wing, blah, blah, blah. I know I didn't exactly see it come up off, off the horizon, you know. And she goes, Well, I have to tell you about that second interview. I said, And what's that? She goes, You know, it says where I was drinking Long Island iced teas beforehand. <laughs> she goes, I don't know what a Long Island iced tea is. It's a cocktail that says Long Island iced tea cocktail. Right. And she, I said, Might it have been another drink? She goes, No, because I don't drink. You know, they added the in the second interview the drink to make her look drunk. And then I said, then she said, there's something else you uh, may not know about my second interview. I said, what's that? She goes, there was no second interview. Yeah, did you see that coming? <laughs> they made it up. And then I said, there's something you may not know. And she said, what's that? I said, you're not the only one. I And at least three key eyewitnesses, the CIA and or FBI, manufactured brand new interviews to negate the effect of the initial interviews. And this included the three most critical of all eyewitnesses. There's probably a lot more they did this to that I don't know about because I've been in touch with these three. But and they swear, no, no second interview. Right. Not only her, but the man on the bridge around whom the CIA developed its final fatal Mike uh, Wire, I Mike think. Mike Wire, yes. right? Yep. Who's become a real good friend of mine. And um <clears throat> And also, uh, Dwight Brumley, a Navy guy who was on uh, a U.S. air flight flying overhead, uh, flight 800 when he saw it. And who really, you know, has had radar training and, uh, missile test training and was shocked that they didn't come talk to him. Mm-hmm. But in each case, the CIA manufactured new eyewitness, uh, things. <laughs> and in the case of, uh, <clears throat> flight, uh, witness number 73, they actually put one in her file. In the case of Wire, they just improvised it on the spot, in the, but they didn't put it in his file. And then in the case of Brumley, they just switched it out. But they unmistakably left the old one in the file. So we have two, one in which he's saying it goes right to left, and they they have them saying it goes left to right. That's how, how utterly corrupt this investigation was with the CIA's involvement.
2: That, man, that, that, that's, well, yeah, it's, it's easy to believe, I suspect, but... Uh... Uh, it's more than incompetence obviously and I
1: should add with witness 73 and reading her files and talking to her you know uh, she wasn't grandstanding she was on the beach with two of her in-laws and they would not talk to the FBI and they saw what she saw which means that there's many many more people on Long island who saw it and talked to the FBI and they were upset that she gave them their names and in fact her uh, fiance who was they are about to get married was so upset uh, it almost caused a break up the relationship because they didn't want to have anything to do with the FBI. Mm-hmm. And then she, now she figured out why that was so.
2: Um, well, it, no, no. He, she contacted. I mean, what changed? It was because he of 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 her husband. Now, I mean,
1: yeah. It, what happened is that uh, her husband was dead set against her participating. Right. When I talked to her, her husband was uh, he was uh, for whatever reason in Saint Joseph, Missouri, about an hour from where I was, and he had. If I remember her correctly, stage four cancer, it was in right. terminal stages. Otherwise, she would never have even talked to me. And what I did is, I, I said to her, you know, I got her name and number and everything, and I, uh and I said to her, I called her maybe a few days later. I said, you know, I'm going to be in St. Joe next week. Uh Why don't we have one? I wasn't going to be. I just say I'm passing through. And she goes, No, sorry. I this is as far <laughs> as I go with this. I can't talk about this anymore. Um, amazing. And that's true of a lot of people, and I don't blame them, you know. Well,
2: yeah. Why well, put yourself in in the middle of this firing line, especially knowing, um, knowing the corruption? And, and I use that word intentionally. Corruption. Um, I think it's fair to say that we've got not only a, a, a cover up and a conspiracy, but uh, I mean, this this is a pretty serious. What you've discovered, uncovered, and reported. Extremely serious, and um, I, I can't think of a reason for national security. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Um,
1: well, you know, I mean, I'm sure that they. I, I suspect, I should say, I'm not sure, but the people at the next level of cooperation, yeah, maybe even including Jim Kalstrom, were probably told a false story. I think they were told the Iran story. You know that we think it was Iran. We're not sure. We don't want to retaliate unless we're sure. You know. For reasons of national security and to save the airline industry, we've, we've got to, you know, suppress this story. Uh, but the the top echelon of people, the Gorelics, the Sandy Burgers, the Clintons, um, and maybe not much deeper than that, knew. They knew what they were doing. I think Dick Morris knows too.
2: And and you can control, really, you can control the, the, uh, um, basically the entire investigation. With that number, that limited number of people, yeah. because of the centralization of information
1: and power. And a few and people in the Navy knew what happened, too. Okay. Not many, but a few.
2: And with the media complicity.
3: Yeah, know, that's what I that's you, the icing right, on the cake.
1: You're absolutely right, Joe. Without a guarantee of that, they could never, no Republican president could ever, ever have tried to do this. You know?
3: Now, wow. um, do we know uh, or have an idea? And, and I know we're reaching the top of the hour. Uh, we'll be taking a break here, and then coming back with our third and final hour with author Jack Cashill, author of TWA Flight 800. Do we have motive? Do we have suspects? Do we have reasons?
1: Yeah, and uh, in fact, maybe we should save that for the third hour. And um, I knew you were going to ask that. Too. That's a good excellent question. Yeah. Who shot him? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, we haven't even bra- uh, broached that question yet. And I, and I will say this: when um, I got into it, uh, and once I was convinced that it was a missile. I wanted it to be terrorist. You know, just my gut wanted it to be terrorist. Right. Because the alternative is I I didn't want to contemplate.
3: As opposed to what, Bill Clinton with an RPG? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Colonel Plum uh, in the uh, study with the uh, uh, (laughs) candlestick. No, the alternative is U.S. Navy misfire. Bad.
2: I mean, yeah, just think about that. And, and, And you alluded to something at the very beginning of the show
3: about something that was going on. Um, I'm not sure if it was some kind of drill missile or, test. Was that? Was well,
1: yeah, in a missile test, but a high state of alert. And it's not impossible that it was some combination of the two: a terrorist action and a naval misfire. But uh, I will say this: you know, I don't want to you know, drag out the suspense. The U.S. Navy was involved in this.
3: Folks, we're going to hear more about this on the other side. We're talking with in-studio guest Jack Cashill. His book, TWA 800. Pre-order it now. It comes out on the 5th of July. You can go to Amazon and order that. Again, TWA 800. We'll be right back with our third and final hour with Jack Cashill right after these short messages. In-studio us, right? Yeah. Stay with us. The Hagman and Hagman Report. This is the Global Star Radio Network
0: the dangers denials and deceptions for five years a brutal killer remained on the loose free to kill again as mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond you may never look at your city town or its people the same way ever again stained by blood Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link, Stained by Blood.
1: we have to come through this.
2: Summer. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this final hour of the Hagman, the Hagman Report. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's been a coup. It, really, there <laughs> has been a coup. Uh, no, I, I, I'll get to this in a moment. Uh, portions of this broadcast brought to you by American Survival Wholesale. Folks, go to AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com for all of your survival needs. Now, that's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. And take a look on the screen if you're watching this live or, or on archive. Take a look and, 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 and Uh, You know, our listeners are are so loyal, but they're also intelligent. I was telling Mr. uh, Cashel, we've got the best audience in the world. I really believe that. And we will not endorse or sponsor or endorse any product or or talk about any product that we don't believe in ourselves and don't use ourselves, I have to tell you. Great-tasting food with American Survival Wholesale, long-term food, long-term storable food. That's American and other things, too. Just go to AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Minuteman Stove as well. Uh, great stoves. Joe talks about them all the time. Uh, picture an ammo can that's reinforced. And, uh, hey, you need a stove to cook your food, right? So, Minuteman Stove. Minuteman Provision Company. MinutemanStove.com. Just go to our website for both links. And last but not least, HealthMasters.com. HealthMasters, how you feeling? Folks, how you feeling? i got to tell you, you're going to feel a lot better, a lot differently with Healthmasters nutritional supplements. Also, Dr. Ted Brower, a great friend of the program, is going to be on this coming Thursday for the entire show. We're talking about nutrition facts and geopolitics and all kinds of stuff. But Healthmasters.com, visit the website at Healthmasters.com and uh, sign up for the newsletter and, and also go shopping. The best nutritional supplements you can ever ask for. By the way, his son Austin... Is, uh, is, you, you know, that he was hospitalized last week. Life threatening condition. Young guy. Young guy. Just became a father, too. Uh, thanks for your prayers. And keep praying for him. Because he's, he's still, he's still, you know, there's still, still some issues. I'm not going to get into it. Maybe if they wants to talk about what was going, what's going on with Austin, uh, he can talk about it on, when he comes in on, on Thursday. But, uh, thank you so much for your prayers. But our special guest tonight is Mr. Jack Cashel, the author of TWA 800. The crash, the cover up, and the conspiracy. And you'll notice to my right, Joe is gone. And there has been a takeover. And, and, about time. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a good friend of the program, by the way. This, the man sitting to my right, uh, Mr. Privateerra, is the guy who s- talked to Jack Cashel, who said, Hey, uh, Mr. Hey, Jack, you better you, you, come on down, uh, uh, come on down to the studios and get on with these guys. So, Absolutely. you're the guy.
1: I'm responsible. You, for this. You're responsible. For <laughs> <setting>. <laughs> He's my coach. He's my, my, <laughs> my caddy. <laughs>
2: Fantastic. And, and, you know, we, as you're sitting here, and of course, we, we take a look at our vast studio audience here, you know, <laughs> um, but anyway. Somebody actually wrote in and said, "Where can I buy tickets?" To uh, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, anyway, um, so uh, we were talking during the break. Jack has not used one note, and I'm just amazed at his memory nice. of events. You know, but uh, anything you like to say, hello. You know? Well,
4: uh, I've known Jack for eleven years, and uh, this is the first time I've really seen him in action. Impressive. And I'm, man. you know, he's a friend, but this is this is quite amazing. The recall he has on the information, and, uh, I mean, he has it nailed. Oh,
1: yeah. No, thank you. And, you know, although we were talking at night, we were, went out to his wings place. We were talking like college basketball from the 60s, and I, <laughs> and I dawn on it. I still remember the names of these guys who, uh, played, you know, when, uh, yeah. when I was a little kid. But, um now what we, uh, just, uh, you know, we're not far away, just for those in the audience who don't know where we are physically. You guys are just outside Erie, Pennsylvania, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's a very nice part of the world here, by the way. Beautiful, in fact, at this time of the day and this time of the year. Uh, Nin and I met, and we're just over the border in uh, New York State. And I spend my summer in my summer hideout up there where the NSA (laughs) and the CIA can't find me, you know. And we put together a little lakeside cabal, you know, of of like minded people. And we're going to have to have the. Doug and Joe up this summer as our special guests for uh, our a- annual uh, blowout. You know?
2: and, and Jack, if you don't invite us, we're just going to sneak up <laughs> anyway, you know? we're going to crash the party. Well, just, we,
1: maybe we'll have it recorded live. You know? just follow the drones. Yeah, you know? right. Now right. <laughs> yeah, we do uh, actually do a survey every year too. is the to, you know uh, things. Mm-hmm. And now you have to remember this time I went I went in to, to confirm this when we first met, and we met in 2008, early in the summer, right?
4: Well, we met in two thousand five. Right, but, but in two
1: thousand eight. Two thousand eight, we had the the uh, cabal party. Right, and 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 I was asked, we said, who's going to be vice president? Yeah, uh, the Republican pick for vice president. Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, and I said uh, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin, and everyone said, who's Sarah Palin? And I said, watch and see if I'm not right. Proved me right. Last in two thousand twelve, I said Paul Ryan, but that was an easier pick. That right. was a little more obvious.
2: But uh, yeah, well, know. out with it now. Come no, in
1: 2001. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm prognosticating. I leave it at little parties where if I'm wrong, I don't have to live with it. You know. So wow. this year is an un, you know a wildly unpredictable year. You know, yeah. To say the least.
2: In- indeed. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's wow. I, I don't want to even get lost in that thought.
1: You no, know, it's like a science fiction movie. Yeah. But then 2008 was sort of a who who'd have thought 2008. Who, who would have thought that we could have elect Barack Obama president, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did. Yeah. Know, and we're still here eight years later. So it's a testament to the resilience of the that that America.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, well okay, Jack. Um it, Again, TWA 800, the crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy. Folks, go to Amazon.com. Please, please. And, and you know what? If you know anyone, and this is so important, because we can change history. I believe we can. Maybe I'm a little bit naive. I don't think so. We can change history. If you know someone who knows, has any in information, who's a witness, who may, uh, whatever, Jack Cashel is the guy. Jack, your email address is.
1: Yeah, jcashel at aol.com. C-A-S-H-I-L-L. Right.
2: Plus, plus, let's make, let's make his book number one on Amazon. And and that does a lot of things because when, when you give him number one on Amazon, you, you, Hey, you know what? Um, aside from the, the number of people reading the book, the media can't ignore that. Well, they could, but it's a little it bit. Makes more it makes it awkward for them. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. So let's get the facts out to all of the public. 20 years this is July 17th, 20 years ago. But see, it's so relevant today. Um, all right, so where we left off last hour, where we should start this hour, Jack is. Well, who, Joe
1: said uh, who did it, who and did then it? Uh, uh, someone came and took him away. Uh, he was. Is right. that the NSA <laughs> or the FBI that took him out of here? Well,
2: I, I don't know. You know, just two guys in sunglasses. <laughs> who years, did it? it, it <laughs> right. Yep. But 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 Mr. Perfetta here is. The, the, hey, welcome to fill in. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, but who did it?
1: I mean, and it, this is a, a difficult question because I, I will tell you with one hundred percent confidence that. Uh, multiple missiles blew Flight 800 out of the sky. I will tell you with 95% confidence, uh, that maybe 98% confidence that the U.S. Navy was involved in that. Uh, and I, I didn't, I come to this conclusion reluctantly because I remember when Pierre Salinger first came out with this theory yeah. in 1997, I was kind of appalled that he would suggest that. You know, because I have a lot of faith in the, the, our military, a lot of faith in the, our armed forces. And it's not that mistakes can't be made, but you would—I would, would presume—they'd own up to them. And for instance, in 1988, uh, I tell this story in here, and this is—it is also an, in some way a harbinger of what was to come under Bill Clinton. But um, we did uh, accidentally shoot a Iranian Airbus out of the sky uh, in yep. the Persian Gulf, and yep. uh, there was an element of uh, owning up to it. We, you know, we took responsibility for doing it. And yet, there was an element of cover up within the Navy itself, and uh, which is not, actually conspiracies of concealment are commonplace. Anytime there's a major screw up, people run and start, you know, uh, start trying to figure out how they could absolve themselves from blame from the screw up. Conspiracies of execution are rare. Conspiracies of concealment are the nature of human beast, you know, they just happen all the time. So after, in the summer of 1992, let's jump ahead. Since this happened in the Reagan-Bush administration, there was a lot of media attention on the Vincent, Vincennes, the, the ship, the cruiser that shot the uh, Airbus out of the sky. So there's a hearing in uh, Washington, congressional hearing, uh, headed by Les Aspen, who was then the head of the Armed Services Committee, mm-hmm. who would later become um, Secretary of Defense, yep. notoriously. And... um they were grilling Admiral Crow, who is the Director of Naval Operations, and uh, they were cons- accusing him of a cover-up of the Vincennes, of the details. And um, it ended inconclusively. Crow said, I oh, know, we didn't cover it up. And they said, yes, you did. And then Aspen said, we'll be back in the fall, and we're going to follow up on this, right? Well, this is 92, the summer of 92. At that time, the military was almost universal, and it's loathing for the President... Aspirant Bill Clinton is running for president, except for Admiral Crow, who surprisingly, in neither August or September, makes a pilgrimage to Little Rock, <laughs> there to stand side by side with Bill Clinton, say, you know, saying uh, rallying the troops to his uh, his candidacy. And he had he had to admit he prospered under the under Reagan and Bush, right. and he had to say Bush did a good job with Gulf War One. I. I can't you know or go through the the Gulf. What do we call them? Desert Storm. Desert Storm, right? We didn't have one and two yet. We just right. had one, just like in World War One. They weren't calling it World War One; <laughs> <laughs> they were just calling it the Great War. Uh, and anyhow, so everyone said, "Well, that's odd," you know. And then he he pens an op ed for the New York Times supporting Clinton's candidacy, right? Well, come uh, the fall, uh, Les Aspen is made the uh, Secretary of Defense, and so that committee goes away. And Crowe is made some special advisor. To the president, and then you know a year or two later, he's made ambassador to the court of uh, the St. James, the ambassador in England. Right. So he was re- well rewarded for that. And what I think Clinton uh, realized at that time is, with the right combination of carrots and sticks, uh, even high-ranking naval officers can be uh, corralled into behaving. Appropriately,
2: more carrots than sticks. Though. In Crow's case,
1: yeah, it was all yeah. carrots. It's, yeah, yeah.
2: Wow. And okay. So this is, I mean, it's the relevance because we're seeing, well, we're seeing a Clinton candidacy, presumably. But the relevance here is it's the same playbook, and it's been the same playbook. Look at Benghazi. I mean, when when I read, I mean. Yeah, it's the same playbook. Same plays, same tricks, basically. Yeah. You know, just different uh, actors, different uh, parts, different yeah. circumstances.
1: Let me digress a little bit Go on ahead. Benghazi, because I have a special knowledge here, too. And and partly is, is you write exact same playbook. Right. Where is, where is Barack Obama on the night of uh, September 11, 2012? We still don't know. Right. They wouldn't even tell. Uh, well, and the media barely bothered themselves to ask, but we don't know where he was that night. He wasn't in a situation room. He was presumably up in the family quarters. Right. The one person he talks to is Hillary Clinton. We know that they yep. admitted that. And at 10 p.m., she puts out a press conference, and she blames uh, the video, uh, yep. this uh, the trailer for this video called "Innocence of Muslims." And because what what this is leading up to is the most I think the most despicable moment in Hillary Clinton's um, public life that we know about. We know she tells the America that it was a video. Right. We know that she tells Chelsea, we, she tells the president of Egypt, she tells the president of Libya that it was a t- terrorist attack. But she doesn't say that publicly. On September, uh, two days after, 14th or 15th, she meets with the family members of the four who were killed at uh, Dover, wherever they brought them back in. And she tells them, four of them independently, from three different families, the video maker, uh, the video was responsible for this, and I'm gonna put the video maker in prison. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Nikula, Bassley, Nikula. I have my speed dial here if you want to talk to him some night. Um. Yeah, let's do that, Jack. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. we're, 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 <laughs> I bring mean, that up. Right, nice break That's a great there. party favor. You know, let's talk <laughs> to <Nicola> tonight, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've done that. I, I, you know, I shouldn't, but it's. Yeah. Uh, so what happens is that, uh, a day or two later, Nikola, who's a Christian, co- a Christian, Coptic Christian from Egypt, yep. and a United States citizen, is arrested yeah. and put in prison to sell the Benghazi lie. Right? Mm-hmm. She was as good as her word on that. Sure. Now, uh, several months later, I said, I wonder what happened to the filmmaker. So I sent him a letter. I, I looked him up in the um, the prison registry. I found where he was. He was in El Tuna, Texas, in a federal prison in the middle of nowhere. And I sent a um, a letter to Nakula, and I didn't hear anything back. And then about ooh, nine months later, I get a call from Nakula in California, and he yeah. says, uh, "Jack, this is Nakula. You know, he has a heavy accent. It'd be hard to put him on the air." And he says, uh, "Why didn't you answer my letters?"
0: <laughs>
1: I said, "What letters?" So he got my letter, and. Uh, he sent me several letters back and I didn't, they, they weren't allowed out. Right. Mm. And then he received something else he told me that's very depressing when you think about it. He said, I was the only person in the media who tried to contact him. Right. <clears throat> and, um, this is a shocking story when you think about it. You know, you wor- people say, Oh, we're worried about Trump being a but No. When you're willing to put an innocent man on prison to sell a lie to the family members of the, of the dead, I mean, there's a special place in hell to serve, you know, yeah. below the ninth circle on that one, you know? Yeah, exactly. This is what we're dealing with, and you're right, there is a playbook, and we'll see it again if, if Hillary Clinton returns to the White House. What was
4: uh, Benghazi, a, a gun-running operation out of the uh, Libyan territory, uh, getting the uh, guns to the Syrian rebels? Yeah,
1: I mean, basically, it. they were trying to collect the guns that they had, uh, you know, gathered up, and... And I mean, Benghazi you know, the whole Libyan experience was based on lies. The notion of this genocide that was about to take place—it wasn't. There's was no genocide. Yeah. Uh, who knows why they went? I mean, we I, we can go on forever about that. But sure. Then they then it was a question of how do we s- sell the fact that our Libyan policy was an utter total disaster? We blame it on the video. Then we blame it on the video maker, and then we put him in prison and silence him for a year. You know.
2: Well. Yeah, and, and, you know, I, I've done a lot of research and investigation on Benghazi, and we'll, we'll, we'll switch subjects here in a second. If you can tell, I, I had some surgery done in my mouth, and boy, does it hurt. Hmm. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? Uh, well, we're back to the, the story yes, of, uh, oh, I, of, uh, uh, of, how the, essentially yeah. you can
1: buy off, uh, yeah. or scare off, or intimidate, or terrorize people into, uh, uh being compliant. And so, what uh, you know in terms of what did happen on the night of July seventeenth? Yeah, and I, I don't have all the answers, but there's one um, element that is the, that it is the giveaway, and that is the uh, the Navy Orion P three.
2: I was wonder- I was wondering when you were going to get to that.
1: Flying uh, directly above uh, TWA eight hundred when it exploded, probably about five thousand feet above it.
2: Captain Rayot.
1: Yes, right? right, exactly, and his crew about eight or nine guys. Uh, is a Navy uh, P-3 Orion, which is a, basically a surveillance plane. It's used to spot submarines and to track submarines. But it has another use. And at that time, it was used frequently in this position. And it, it, this was no secret in 1996. You know, I went back to it. I found that Johns Hopkins illustrated a technical guide where they showed illustration after illustration of this what's called the Cooperative Engagement Capability, CEC. And what they did was they're testing it, I think they started testing in ninety four uh off Puerto Rico, and they would have the various combatants in one of these uh, groups. The combatants would include a cruiser, uh several submarines, uh maybe an additional cruiser, because the, the the controlling cruiser may not have been the one that fired the missiles, it may have been just the one who was giving the orders. And above it all, coordinating the activity was the P three O'Rion. And they would, you know, convey inform. And the P3 Orion was used to uh, transmit information from one member of this battle group to another battle group. And then there was the enemy. Uh, the enemy, I forget the word. The enemy combatant. They'd use, and the enemy could be either a drone or an, a missile. Because basically, what they were testing was the anti-missile capabilities of the ship-to-air. Uh, missile. So instead of just taking out a plane, you had to take out a missile, which is a harder target, or a drone, because they're flying at supersonic speeds. And uh, so those kinds of tests were, by 1996, not exactly routine, because they were still in their experimental stages, and it was very complicated, which is part of the reason why the Aegis missile system was capable of blowing the Iranian Airbus out of the sky. It's just mm-hmm. overwhelmingly complicated for people who aren't particularly well-trained. But the fact that the P3 Orion was sitting right there, doesn't that tell us something? And what they're telling us is a coincidence? Mm -hmm. It was just flying right overhead? And that his transponder was broken?
2: Yeah, that that was weird, yeah. So
1: that they, you know, it doesn't show up on the radar? Now, you know, accidents happen. I'm willing to forgive, you know, even terrible uh, accidents happen. And I I just don't understand why police go to prison when they accidentally shoot someone. But, um... Because you're putting them in a position with their, where things can go wrong, and when they go wrong, they'll go fatally wrong. You know. Right.
2: But uh, this during this time, and people need to remember, um, this was in well against the backdrop of uh, Ramsey Youssef. Yes, exactly. You know, okay, so I mean, talk about the high, high heightened threat level, highest uh, alert level uh, with our military, or relatively high um, for peacetime. Ramsey Youssef threatened to use passenger airplanes, uh, threatened to blow up 11 over the, over the yeah, ocean.
1: Right. And he also threatened as part of the Bojinka plan, for which he was on trial that very day in New York City. Um, the part of the Bojinka plan was to take small chartered planes and fill them with explosives to attack American targets. Right. Now, they knew that. I mean, the military, the Clintons were aware of that. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Buzz Patterson, the fellow who was talking about the, uh, Colonel, uh, who, uh, was, uh, carried the nuclear, yep. uh, bomb. I mean, the, uh, sorry, the, uh, football uh, nuclear football. Thank yep. you. I knew I didn't came along for a reason. <laughs> when I stumble here, it gets it bails me out. But, um, you know, he said, I was in the White House that, that summer, and then we were passing, I, I said, I could tell you as a pilot, because I took an interest. I saw these documents about the use of planes as bombs. Uh, and that Bill Clinton had signed off on it, so he had read this document. This was immediately in the wake of TWA Flight 800. Right. I don't know that there wasn't a terrorist airplane involved in the mix.
2: Yeah, we had heard uh, reports of that—a uh, small Cessna. Uh, there were reports, you know, heading toward um, the, aiming at uh, TWA Flight 800. But what we can do, Jack, is we can check the records at the National Archives to to, to check the memorandums. Wait a minute,
1: those are gone. Wait a minute. Uh,
2: <laughs> Sandy Berger, that's who. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, gee whiz.
1: And you know, what's interesting is that when, um, during the 9 uh, the 11 uh, hearings in 2004, the first question Condoleezza Rice was asked was Did anyone in the Clinton administration tell you about the use of planes as bombs? <laughs> and she said no. And she was telling the truth. Because as Richard Clark said, that that subject was off the table for the last five or six years. Wow even though Clark himself had once warned about the possibility of terrorists flying a, a loaded plane, of you know, filled with explosives into, like, oh, the uh, Olympic Games, or, you know, that yeah. that was part of their worry. So that's part of the reason why they were on alert. That's part of the reason, if they were testing the system, uh they needed to be able to test it in a high-density area. I don't, you know, because if a plane is attacking America, it's not going to attack Arizona. It's going to come into New York it's going to come in as we saw in 911 it's going to come into Washington and if you have a system that can is capable of taking it out if it's you want to test it at some point even if there's some risk involved in testing it um, but would they would they use live ordnance? I mean ordinarily no uh, what they usually do in these tests is just track it you know okay. but um they have the live ordinance I mean they don't have like right. You know, dummy or Maybe they do, but uh, uh, I guess, yeah, that was kind and of. I, and in a book, I try not to speculate too much right. on what when missiles were fired, or you know, it's. But it's quite possible that even the CIA acknowledged the possibility of proximity fuses and sure. you know, uh, things that don't hit the plane but blow up near the plane.
2: Well, okay. You know what, Jack? I, w- I want to ask you this before we get run out of time here. You had mentioned something, and I and I vaguely remember this, not of the videotape itself but I remember of the story and I tried to chase it down that there was somebody some amateur photographer some videographer somewhere who happened to catch the actual event on video
1: right? Yes in fact someone one of your questioners here raised that issue about that now, let me see what this is here um no that's an earlier one I'll, I'll get back to that later but one of the questioners did and mm-hmm. yeah and, and and if those of you have you read Nelson DeMille's novel uh, Nightfall no, did you read that? And then uh, parts of it. This is the one that's based on Flight Eight Hundred, and what he what it it begins with this video, and it begins with this very steamy scene on the beach. The beach wedding. Right. <laughs> I, I, someone talked about the beach wedding. This wasn't a wedding in the Nelson the Mill book. It wasn't a beach wedding. Okay. But it was a steamy beach scene. <laughs> that's part of the part. Oh and then, yeah. Then only yeah, watched, you read okay. that part. <laughs> I missed that
2: one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but. Um, and the, the questioner asked about a video taken during a beach wedding. Yes, there was a video taken. I know this. It
2: was a consummation
1: part of the wedding. <laughs> yeah, right. <That> was, <laughs> no, DeMille just skipped that. He went to the honeymoon, you know? But, um, yes, there was a video. This is the holy grail of this investigation, is the video. Hmm. And, um, I, I've talked to a hundred people who saw it. I talked to, um, the technical director. Not, I, not, this, I talk about this in a book, but, MSNBC, which was on the air for two days at a time, appears to have bought the rights to this video. They showed it a few times that night, and it was confiscated. The technical director at MSNBC is... men talked about this. He won't go on air to talk about it, but I know it's... He said, two guys in suits came, took all the copies, said, never, you mention this again, or you're in serious trouble, blah, blah, blah. Well, the, my best source on this is a guy... A seven forty seven pilot. I mentioned him by name in the book, Thomas Young, mm-hmm. who was laid up in Hong Kong, uh, with and his wife came to visit him to get a back surgery, and um, they, and they showed it in Hong Kong on the air for a couple of weeks, and he said, watch it day after day, and he said that's what it was. There was there was a deck, there was a party, there was a video, and then all of a sudden they see this object coming up in the background, and uh, everyone says, what is that? You know, blah blah blah. Well, that video is gone. That's been confiscated, right?
2: Can anyone check Chris uh, Matthews' closet or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but, but.
1: Well, that leads to this other very interesting part of our new information. Now, James Sanders and I talk all the time, and about a year ago, maybe so, I don't know, about a year ago, he calls me and says, You won't believe what I got in the mail. I said, He said, What? He said, I've been you know, submitting these Freedom of Information Act to the FBI, and I got the video. They sent me the video. And I said, My gosh, that's incredible. So I said, yeah, you got to send me a copy of this. we got to see this, you know. So Jim was a little skeptical at first because he wasn't sure that they weren't trying to bait him in some way. And he sends me the video. And uh sure enough, there it is. There's a missile going up. Bam, something coming, flaming out of the sky. And I'm watching it, and then I hear the critical words that were going to break Jim's heart when I told him. The guy who's shooting the video says, hey, it looks like a rocket going up. Right? Well, I was the only person in America who could have dissuaded Jim from believing in his story because what happened was, I knew this from the FBI documents, that five days before the uh, July 17th on July 12th, an amateur videographer had accidentally captured a video test mm-hmm. uh, shot in the morning of uh, July 12th off the coast of Long Island. So these are people on a deck, like it's supposed to be in the video. Uh, they have the Long Island accent, you know, and you can see the video. And he says, yeah, it looks like a rocket going up. We know that the, from the FBI documents, the Defense Intelligence Agency saw and said, yeah, this is, this is a, a contrail from a video, uh, from a missile. And then, um, so I, I have to, and then I, I check what I did to check, cause it's hard to tell dusk from dawn on a north, south, and a stretch that goes east, west, you know, where the sun's not obvious in, in the, Imagery, so I checked the thing called moon page, right? And I said, "Jim," I, he said, "No, I it can't. It's got to be." July. I, I checked. He said it was a new moon. I said, "Jim, on July twelfth morning, it was waxing. On July seventeenth evening, it was waning."
2: I don't even know what the heck that means. No, I don't it know, it know what it mean. means either. At the time when yeah. I wrote it, I did,
1: but I've forgotten it since. But um, one's going one way, one's yeah, I mean, going the exactly. other. Way.
4: Waxing is when it's diminishing. It's uh, on its way. It's on its way towards a new moon where you. You can't see it for a couple of days, right? I used okay. to teach earth science.
1: <laughs> there you go. It's wow! A, right. no, no, you wonder. it wasn't in the hair time. We and had then waning,
4: is even <laughs> closer to just a little crescent, right,
1: right. But anyhow, that's so. I, I, I said the moon, and he said, I said, but this thing has incredible evidentiary value nonetheless. And I said because in the FBI documents, when they talk about this missile, all they talk about is this the thing going up. What they don't talk about is the flaming debris coming down. Mm. And how do you explain this away if it's not a test, right? Right. And yet, when the FBI closed its uh, investigation in November 1997, they said there had been no missile tests in that area for more than two years. Well, there was a missile test five days earlier. And from the CIA documents that we've discovered, they they talked about a missile test on July 7th, seen by multiple people. So you have missiles being fired on 7th, the 12th, and the 17th. Mm-hmm. There's a, a numerical sequence here. That's if if we kept on going, there'd probably be one on the twenty second. Why? Yeah, I would think.
2: Uh, okay.
1: Well, okay. With
2: that in that same train of thought, and I had read your American Thinker article, the article that appeared in American Thinker, and, um, and I asked you this before, but I'll ask this again: If this was a, a missile from the U.S. Navy. Fired from either a submarine or a ship, or it don't, it don't matter, whatever. Wouldn't you think that there'd be one of the comments on, on commenters on the American Thinker article said, Oh, you can't keep that quiet. There'd be too many sailors that would be telling, telling, telling. They'd be telling on, 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 uh, telling what happened.
1: You know, and, uh, that is a good question. I think it's a legitimate question. Mm hmm. And it's one I wrestled with for a while until I started talking to sailors. All right. I, t- I started talking to people involved in these kind of... You know, for one, I talked to one guy who was involved in missile tests in the Pacific. He said, we wouldn't talk about... We are under total secrecy to talk about even about tests, let alone tests that have gone awry. Mm-hmm. Then I talked to other guys, and they all knew that just a little slice of that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have known if I'm a submarine, I'd have known if something came out of the tubes. I wouldn't have known what it was. I wouldn't have known where I was. I wouldn't have known what the consequences of it was. But what I do talk about in the book, and it's probably my best source, uh naval guy who was on the USS Carr. Mm-hmm. And he was in the command information center, which is, is it's windowless. And there's maybe eight, six, eight people in there. And they're not... And he said, our ship isn't the one firing the missiles, but ours is the one that's giving the orders. And he said... And he explained what happened this one night, or this one you know, this one night. He said immediately, you know, he doesn't know exactly. I mean, maybe he knows where he is roughly, but not exactly. He knows they fired a missile, doesn't know where. And then he said the, the order from a chief petty officer came in and said, destroy this, destroy that, destroy this, shred this, watch this, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then he said he does all those things. And I checked out every single detail he told me, and everything checks out. And then he said, we were ordered to Bermuda immediately, but we couldn't leave the ship and we couldn't communicate <laughs> off the ship. And so then I checked the history of the USS Car. Well, uh, they had a new commander who had been on five days. And uh, from April of 18, 1990, you know, I then I look at the ship history, hmm. which was complete downs in a month, except for the period April 96 and November 96. Nothing. The history is blank. It's, and other things that's been deleted, subtracted. Uh, erased from the record. And then the car from November on goes to the Mediterranean. Now, the guy who I was communicating with is, you know, scared for his life. You know, I didn't use his real name. I'm communicating with enough. I know exactly who he is and where he is. And he, uh, and my urging tried to contact his commander through the Facebook, you know, and got a hold of him. And the commander said, oh, no, we're, the only missile test we did were in Puerto Rico, blah, 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 you know. Uh, but that's, you get these little bits and pieces, you know. And but the people who know are very few, who know enough to walk into the New York Times newsroom and said, "I did it. I pulled the trigger." Because if my guy walks in New York Times newsroom, well, this can blow him off, right? You know, right. Um In fact, I don't even think New York Times would talk to the guy who said, "I walked in and pulled the trigger." <laughs> I think Probably if Jim Kalstrom walked in and said, "Hey, the whole thing's smoke and mirrors," I think they'd say, "Oh, you're on Fox News. What do you know?" <laughs> you know, they just make stuff up, right? That's how. Bad, That's the state we're in with our media right now. The don't want to know, don't want to know, mm-hmm. don't want to know, you know. it's amazing. That Peter. would
4: complicate the uh, campaign,
2: wouldn't
1: it? Oh, this year, absolutely. <laughs> and they especially don't want to know in an election year. You know? <laughs> Bad enough during an off year, you know. Yeah.
2: yeah, is there anything you want to bring up, ask? Uh... So it looks like a tragic mistake? Yeah, I believe it is. And
1: uh, like I say, I cannot rule out the possibility that there was... In that mix, uh, and a terrorist plane, but uh, I haven't seen enough evidence in the years I've been looking at this to confirm that. So I got to let that that theory die.
2: Interesting. And folks, again, uh, contact Mister Jack Cashel, the author of TWA Eight Hundred: The Crash, the Cover Up, and the Conspiracy. Uh, coming out July 5th but contact him if you have any information you can make a difference we can make a difference collectively individually and collectively i believe we can make a difference through his book but also through the passage of information uh or if you don't want to you can certainly uh, send it to us and uh, at the uh, studio at hagmanhagman.com. we'll forward it right to jack but uh, no reason why you shouldn't send it directly to Jack Cashel. Jack, if you want to give out your email address again. Yeah,
1: just jcashel at AOL.com. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and I'm particularly interested in talking to people who actually have some inside information. Yeah. And uh, I would say in the last week or two weeks, I've been hearing from a person a day.
2: That's, a, that's, that's incredible. I had
1: pretty high levels, you know. I mean, it's just really... You know, I had a long talk with a pilot today who worked in investigation I mentioned earlier who got thrown off after less than two weeks yeah. for asking too many questions.
2: Yeah, you know, that was the other thing too in your book It surprised me. And, and as we wrap it up here, the, um, the, the evidence, how it was tampered with, um, how it, evidence went missing from that hangar. I guess I can get that. I, I get some of that. Uh, two FBI agents, were caught inside that hangar at 3 in the morning. 3
1: o'clock in the morning, unauthorized, yeah, right? Yeah, On video? Yeah, on video. And when the fellow who caught them was, a, was a now probably the most prominent of all the whistleblowers, his name's Hank Hughes, he was in charge of reconstructing the airplane, hmm. right? When at that level you're saying, no, missiles brought down his plane, we were lied to and deceived throughout. At that level, it took him years before he realized what had happened, the depth of the deception until other information started coming out. Mm. And in that this is and I would recommend too um and even though I had no involvement with its production but uh if you're just interested in the video TWA Flight 800 which came out 3 years ago was reviewed even by the New York Times semi positively uh is worth viewing and I think you can get that on Amazon Prime or yeah. through Amazon too. I, I I think so.
2: Yeah. Well, wow. well all right uh, as we as we wrap up the last 15 minutes of the program here J- Jack I mean it's yours what do people need to know? I mean, the relevance, folks, if you can't see the relevance, you're not paying attention. Um, There's the, so many similarities so many, with regard to politics and geopolitics. But, Jack, I mean, what do we need to know? What more do we need to know about this?
1: Well, Doug, and you raised this question or you raised this point earlier, because I'm sure you're asked this all the time, and I know I am. And that is when I speak to groups of people who say, what can I do, you yeah, know? Yeah. Well, I recommend Facebook. I'm sorry, I, Facebook has become... Uh, a great medium of communication among people with of like-minded interest. Uh, and also a great place to share pictures of your grandchildren. <laughs> but don't send, don't put a food you eat. That's, that's going too far, you know. But Because um, every individual today, thanks to social media, can be a producer of information and a disseminator of information. That's true. You can be your own drudge, you know,
2: yeah, well, on a small
1: scale. You know, you uh, aggregate information and you pass it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, maybe your audience is ten or twenty or thirty or forty or fifty people, but you multiply that by a million or two million or three million or four million people. It is, it is probably only social media that's keeping American balance today to the degree that it is. Because if it weren't for shows like yours, if it weren't for email, Facebook, social media, talk radio, they own everything else. Yeah. And we barely have a foothold at Fox. I mean, so it's uh, it's a, it seems like a one-sided battle. Except what we have on our side is the truth. And the truth will finally win out. It may not be even in our lifetimes, but it will win out. And so I would, I would strongly recommend what you suggest is that you take an interest in this story. I don't want to say buy this book, but this is a, unlike a lot of stories, this is a book length story. Mm-hmm. And it's a human interest story. You know, for instance, I'm intrigued by the, the new book coming out by the Secret Service guy, which is at number one. Yeah. But we know that all the information there is going to be about fifteen minutes worth of information. You can you know you can glean it from the headlines. This is not a headline oriented story. And this is why it's such a privilege to be on your show tonight because it's a even in three hours, we're just in many ways skimming the surface. That's right. And uh until you realize the depth of deception and how well the pieces all fit together, uh and that then you then you can I think begin to understand why you need to pass this information along.
2: Yeah, I- indeed, and you know, I was troubled as I, even though I knew um, a, a lot of the information, and, and you did first strike. I mean, with, with James Sanders, right, Jim Sanders, and
1: even then, I, I didn't. What we have now is two, three times more. Exactly. Yeah, and and don't
2: think if you have First Strike that, well, I don't need, I got, got, you know, I got Jack Cashel's work. No, you got to, this has the connection, I mean, many, uh, exponentially more connections and and more information than than First Strike. Not that First Strike was bad, because I'd still supplement this with First Strike copyright over there. But, um, yeah, uh, it's... can this happen? Would this happen? Can
1: this happen again to the, You know, today, do you think? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, Benghazi is an interesting uh, case in point. Benghazi could happen because it was far away. Right. That, something like this could happen off the coast of Long Island and today and get away with it? No, because of the Internet. The Internet is, is a, you know, it's interesting how uh, the major media demonized the Internet in 1996. Yeah. Uh, because, and then Pierre Salinger comes out, and I, have talked to the guys who, who supplied Pierre Salinger with his information. His information was good. Uh, but he simply wasn't the right guy to, to pass it along, because he's, he didn't know enough. And he, and he, uh, outreached, he went beyond what he knew. And his knowledge base was sketchy. Uh, the people who gave him the information, they knew what they were doing, and they knew what they were talking about, and everything they said proved to be true. They introduced the P three. I mean, within days, they knew about right. that. The New York Times readers never knew about the P three. Um, they knew about the naval exercises. They knew they knew uh, about the air traffic control data, and they're in the book. I, I talked to both of them. They're both retired now, and they're a lot of older people. This is twenty years now. Guys who were sixty in nineteen ninety six are now eighty. Um, but amazing! Other than Sandy Berger, who just died. All the principals are still alive. That's right. So, um, and it's still time to bring bring them to justice, which is ideally what we can do. But you know, it's um, that would take it, Doug, as you say, a, a concerted effort because we're really fighting a a guerrilla grassroots battle here okay. against uh, an entrenched media power.
2: We have uh, uh, Victor listening to this uh, program right now. This episode. Uh, from the Pacific Northwest wants to know, uh, in fact, we had touched on this earlier, the debris field, how it would support a missile, uh, theory or a missile, uh, supposition here, a, a missile hit. And you had mentioned this and you, you greatly, or you, you done a great job in your book explaining how this fits together, this, how a missile, the debris field would what am I trying to say here? Um, the signature of the, the, of the debris field is consistent with a missile hitting the right side, like Sandy Witness Seventy Three had said. Right,
1: and, then, and this comes back to this, you know, and this is what I like, why I like. Why I like telling this story in the first person because it's in many ways about my own journey towards knowledge. Uh, I was in New York City for something else, probably about six or eight years ago, and I got a call from. Um, I stopped by Fox News. I know a couple of people there. I'm not going to mention names because i probably get them in trouble. <laughs> One of them is a high-level producer who's also an on-air personality. And, in um, fact, when we were talking about uh, Bill O'Reilly, whose office a good big corner office down the hall. Uh, by the way, Fox News, all they have in New York City, they all have little tiny crappy offices. You want to have a good office, don't go to New York. And I said, how, did, how do you all get along with Bill O'Reilly? And uh, my friend says, uh, he pays the bills, helps pay the bills. <laughs> said, okay. Well, this guy had a video for me, and, um, he wanted me to see it, and he gave me a copy of it. Of course, in the the ideal world, Fox News would have run with the story, but he, you know, is, there are forces at Fox, just like there's forces at every other network that want to keep us off the air. What the video is of, it's unedited, it's never been seen before, of the debris field is shot from the Navy P3 when it was hovering overhead immediately after the accident. Or the incident. And, um, and it shows, and there was an edited version that was put out. I think the NTSB only saw the edited version of the debris field. And it's, and it comports the, bit by and large, to what you would see, like a long stretch with a little tail on it that, mm-hmm. where the debris fell and it's smoldering and burning. But the, the original unedited version, which this fellow gave me, and by the way, it's posted online at WND, oh, from about seven years ago, and I forget the title of it, but, if you look up P3, Jack Cashel, Google, mm-hmm. you can probably find your way to the video itself. Well, five separate times, during the um, filming, the P3 cameraman tilts up northwest, about a mile or two, towards JFK, and we see a big, smoking, burning object sitting off by itself. And when I told Jim Sanders about this, I called him when I, I first got a hold of this. He said, well... I said, Jim, there's a debris field, but then, you know, we see um, the camera move towards this thing about a mile or two away. He goes, which direction? I said, northeast. He goes, northeast? I thought it would have been northwest, back towards JFK. I said, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I, just, I said the wrong thing. I'm thinking it's northwest. It is back towards JFK. He goes, that's engine number three. That was the first engine blown off by the missile. Now, in the, all the final documentation, that engine is pulled back into the main debris field. So, the NTSB says all four of the missiles, all four of the engines were found together because that would comport with a wow. uh, an internal explosion. But I'm looking at a big engine smoking <laughs> off here or something smoking <laughs> off there. And tell me what it is, NTSB, if it's not an engine. Because it's in, you know, these, uh, a 747 engine is like about 40 times the size of an automobile engine. They're huge, they have uh, lots of burning fuel left in and around mm-hmm. them. Um, and um, there it is. Smoking gun if you want it. They're given to me by Fox. I went and talked to a reporter from uh, New York Times who covered this story, who is halfway open minded. He's no longer with them, which is probably why he's <laughs> um, halfway open minded. And I said, Here it is. You know, tell me what's, what you're looking at here. You know, what is this object smoking back towards JFK? If not engine number three. The first engine blown off. That's where witness number 73 saw the missile hit that's where the uh, fishermen saw the missile hit people were closest to it so that's where the missile hit on the on the side of the right wing engine number 3 the inboard engine on that plane that side and there it was smoking and um it's mm-hmm. still out there smoking you can see it on it the, the D's still running it on its uh you know um, on that site
2: amazing just amazing. Well, Jack, do you have any other um, interviews scheduled, anything we should know about? Because we want to follow you uh, in terms of, oh, well, we're going to stalk you, basically. No, but we we, we want to follow what you're what you're doing. And, and, again, folks, TWA 800, the crash, the cover-up, the conspiracy, Amazon.com, com grab the book uh, if Jack won't say it I will buy the book it's well worth it and let me tell you um, it is so relevant to today because of the playbook the players and the well uh, everything uh, everything just trust me on this this is really a, and Mr. Cashel in my opinion is the foremost expert on this incident um,
1: well you know the, the publicists they like to wait until the actual date you know to right. But I, I know on July 6th, I'll be appearing on Coast to Coast for a couple of hours with uh, George Jerry and Murray. Yep. Good. And they have a great audience, and probably some overlap with your sure. audience. I'd love to get on Alex Jones. If you have any contact with him, we'll have to talk to you about that.
2: Yeah, we can. Uh, Alex. No. Uh, yeah, we'll... Uh, yeah, we can we can arrange that. Huh?
1: But, um, or, uh, and I, oh, I know I do a lot of regional radio. You know, uh, I just did uh, Denver radio this morning, for instance, and... Uh, I've done a couple of Pittsburgh shows with Rose and Quinn. You remember Rose Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They each they're, have their own show. Now yes. And, yeah. Um, cause these are old friends, people I know for a long time sure. and, and happy to, uh, do it in advance. But, you know, my challenge and now is, um, and I, I had a big back and forth with my publisher at Regnery out of Washington is I want to break the, I want a news story. I don't want to just get on the air on, for 15 minutes on, right. or five minutes on some Fox and Friends segment. Well, thanks, Jack. That was great.
2: Well, this is a news story. I, mean, I know, right?
1: Huge, and that's why this three-hour segment, uh, sequel you know, format is so valuable because right. you can tell the whole story or a good chunk of it. But typically, your publishers will say, "Jack, I got you on for Fox and Friends for five minutes," mm-hmm. and they'll be happy. Oh, yeah. Oh, and well, that's a terrible story, Jack. Oh, you think so? Well, you know, you never know. Okay, no, this is Watergate plus. You know, this is Watergate in which two hundred thirty people die. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a serious story. It's not something you can wrap up in five minutes on jolly talk, sitting on a couch. That's right. You know,
2: that's it, yeah. nothing
1: against Fox and Friends. I've been on the show a couple times. They're nice people. <laughs> you know, I've been on O'Reilly. I've been on Glenn Beck. I've been on Hannity. But they, this is a story you cannot dispense with in fifteen minutes. You know, uh, he, he, it's like saying, "Oh, okay, Bob Woodward. Now tell me about Watergate." Okay, now coming up next after Bob Woodward, we're going to have, you know, no, it's yeah. not the way it works, you
2: know. Imagine that. Those of us old enough to remember that, how that developed. Uh, yeah, my goodness. Well, did you have anything you want to add?
1: At all? Uh, it
4: was a treat being here. I've been oh, watching man. you and Joe for many years and uh, I never thought I'd be sitting behind Mike, uh, well, in a, had, jacket jacket and in and a boot in <laughs> with a, a boilermaker jacket.
2: Uh, actually, he wrestled Joe. Or and, and the last time I saw him, you know,
4: Joe was being carted out of here. Yeah, that's on, right. Uh, you know, a, no way
2: I'm going to win that battle. Yeah, right. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, no, it, it, seriously, uh, uh, Mr. Privateer, it was, it was a pleasure meeting you. And of course, you know, thank you for your support. The gentleman's support uh, has, has provided us with support. Not to embarrass you at all, but you know, it's people like. This gentleman here, uh who not only listens but who has really really been gracious gracious to us, and has allowed us to expand a little bit and to make things just a little bit nicer you know yeah. and more interactive. Joe you got to turn your mic on, man, I think unless I lost my hearing I don't but, know. Uh, there uh, we go okay, you can hear me. I yeah. just want to
3: thank jack uh myself too for coming in and being the the first in studio guest in the in the new studio oh, great. Yeah. and uh um uh, I want to thank you for setting this up and, and yeah. look forward to, uh, having you back on again and, and to, uh, a friendship. And I hope all the listeners out there got something out of this. Uh, drop Jack an email or, or send a note to us and let us know what you thought of the show.
2: Jay Cashel at AOL.com. That's right. Jay Cashell. Yeah. And no, no, I no, uh, like I
1: said, I'm particularly interested in people who have, um, re- real inside yeah. knowledge. Actually, I don't, you know, people with theories and speculations, fine. But if you have friends or who, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, the, the contact today I got from was a guy who said, Hey, you know, my cousin worked on the investigation. He has some stories to tell. I said, can you talk to your cousin? 15 minutes later, his cousin calls, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, I was on the investigation. Mm -hmm. I got thrown off. That's I. I could tell you all you need to know about that investigation. So, um, yeah, this, this is a, this will be a grassroots battle, uh, against, and that's the beauty of America. I'm sorry. You know, we have problems. God knows we have problems. We know where they're coming from, but there is still a, there's been a revolution in the exchange of information here, and you guys are, you know, foot soldiers in that battle, uh, that gives us a uh, an, a fighting chance to actually get the truth out, and you don't get that in, you don't get that in Europe even, which is why they you know the EU has been able to steamroller people, although you're getting more of it, as social media develops in places like England, there'd be no Brexit without social media. And you're right about that, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I've lived in Europe, and there, our ability here to communicate among ourselves is so much better. You know, there is no talk radio there. There is no Rush Limbaugh's in Europe. There's no Hagman and Hagmans. There's no, or maybe they're beginning to get that, but they're years and years behind us. Which has neutralized some of the power of uh, of the major media and their uh, allies in the in uh, Washington.
2: to make the media work for their money now, but but also accept you know the. At, at least have them be willing to take the information in TWA 800, the crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy. At least take them seriously. And, and we need, we need to do that. And folks, you can make that happen, really. Let's get behind this as an initiative. Like, like never before, really. We have to put our efforts. Because if not us, who's gonna do it? I mean, seriously, who is gonna do this if we are not gonna do it? You know, Jack, uh, it's it's really been remarkable tonight. I just want to say thank you so much for your for everything you've done. You that, that book, and you know, again, no notes tonight. Uh, an amazing man, an amazing investigative researcher, and it sounds like I've got a man crush on him. I, 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 you know, I, <laughs> seriously, no, I, I just really like I like it when I can uh, interact with people who know their stuff.
3: You know, when we found out you were coming here in studio, my dad came in and said, I feel a tingle
1: up my leg. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I hope there. not. And so, yeah, the so we next thing you know, he's going to be like uh, winning the ESPY, the, the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, winning the first on-air broadcaster to become my uh, you know.
2: Or you're going to be calling me tingles, right? No, no, I, I, I was excited because I, I do like competence. I, I do like the, the fact that you have really put together, to me, a class, a class investigative work product. And I love reading good investigative reports. Folks, Jack Cashel, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover Up, and The Conspiracy. And of course, Mr. Nin Profiterra from uh, Western New York, good friend of the program.
1: And then thanks for introducing me to the show. It's a great show. Yeah, uh, right, right great uh, opportunity. And come
2: back tomorrow, and uh, we'll just keep <laughs> Joe on vacation.
1: And <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah send Joe away. Great job. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks,
2: everyone. And, yeah, until
3: John
1: McTiernan tomorrow.
0: All right. Good night. This is the Global Star Radio Network.